This thing doesn't want to show itself. It wants to hide inside an imitation. It'll fight if it has to. But it's vulnerable out in the open. If it takes us over, then it has no more enemies. Nobody left to kill it. And then it's won. I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. Uh, hi, everybody. Welcome to the Director's Club Podcast. I am Patrick Rapol. I am Jim Laskowski. And once again, I am thrilled to be introducing, quite possibly, no, definitely, my favorite film podcaster out there. He's a returning guest. You know him very well from the Errol Morris episode, and he's the uh, director of uh, Beauty Day. He's a great documentary filmmaker, and he's also the co-host of the Film Junk Podcast. Welcome once again, Jay Cheel, to the show. Hi. Hi, Jay. Thanks for coming back again. Also, you Thanks were for on. The, me. Yeah, you were also on for the uh, fairly recently the compliance and imposter discussion, which was quite a hit as well. Yeah, that so was a lot of fun. Definitely. Quite the experiment, as you said. And uh, as our listeners probably know by now, this episode we're going to be focusing on Disney buying Star Wars. Um, in <laughs> fact, I think from this point on, this podcast is just going to be talking about Disney, Star Wars, Marvel, and mm-hmm. different potential ways that those franchises could cross over um, for films. Um, off the top of my head, uh, what if the rescuers went down under to Tatooine because they were looking for the runaways? Huh? Very clever, Patrick. Um, No, we're actually going to be talking about John Carpenter um, this episode. I thought maybe we could just talk about Hurricane Sandy. Yeah. (laughs) Let's just speak, like, talk about current events in the news. Right. That's really important, you know? Mm -hmm. Big issues? Yeah. Um, Did you hear what Mitt Romney said recently? Oh, no. What dumb thing did he say? I don't know. I, (laughs) I bailed on that joke before I said it. That's okay. Um, now we're going to be talking about John Carpenter once again, uh, making this our first official double dip uh, kind of episode. Because John Carpenter, one of the few horror directors who like truly has a substantial body of really quality work and a yeah. real vision and a real um, sort of voice. Well, I hope this isn't a software slump. No, wait, sophomore slump mm-hmm. for us. I'm really well, I hope. I also hope it isn't a software slump because that would mean that one of the movie discussions won't get recorded, yeah, like the or, Wong Kar Wai episode. Or it'll turn into the Granddaddy record, right? Which of the same name? No, but it, w- it won't be like House Two, the second story mm-hmm. for us. It's gonna, it's going to be more like uh, Break Into, Break Into, yeah, yeah, Electric Boogaloo, or it might even be like Friday Thirteenth Part Two, where the main character from the last movie gets killed off in the opening scene. Mm-hmm. Or it could be like Halloween Two, and we all wind up in the hospital. Yeah. We can keep going. Jay, we could. Jay, any, is it going to be like Gate 2? Is everything just going to turn into shit? Uh, I'm hoping it'll be like Godfather 2, the second story. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, really, I, we, I wanted to have Jay on for um, John Carpenter because I know from, from pretty much from when I started listening to the Film Junk podcast... I, I knew that Jay was a huge fan of his. It's one of his, John Carpenter is one of his favorite directors and uh, influenced uh, a, a, and informed a lot of his uh, inspirations and work over the years. And I can sense, you know, from 
uh, early on listening to the Film Junk podcast and then uh, hearing that he was huge into horror films, and then I saw his short film, uh, Color Non Vidente, correct? Is that how I say it? Close enough? That's, yeah, or color. We, we just eventually were calling it Colorblind. Cool, that's a lot easier. Colorblind, yeah. which you can all watch on uh, Vimeo, and I highly recommend it. And at the time, I, I, uh, I talked to Jay and said, you know, it reminds me of the stuff meets um, After Hours, and but also you can tell that it's influenced a little bit by Carpenter as well. And uh, I, I know that you're a huge fan of, of Carpenter, and you expressed interest in talking about the thing in particular, so it's going to be a fun discussion. Yeah, I mean, John Carpenter is right up there for me, and he's kind of a childhood staple as well, so yeah, I think he's the first director where I actually started to recognize films coming from the same person Mm -hmm. where you could you could see uh the connections throughout his various films and and so that was kind of important for me growing up kind of beginning to realize what exactly a a director or filmmaker does yeah he has a sense of consistency that makes him kind of a a true auteur of of sorts and you know even something just as like his opening titles are very specific Right. And I just I, he's got a singular vision, and we're going to elaborate even more on that. Maybe talk a little bit too about some of his latter work, since we concentrated on stuff like uh, Halloween and Escape from New York and Assault on Precinct Thirteen for the first episode last year on Carpenter. And for this episode, we're going to talk about the thing they live. Uh, probably touch upon Prince of Darkness a little bit and uh, a couple others later in the show. Hey, Jim, spoiler warning, why don't you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I just want to get people excited. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's called the tease in the business. Um, I know. Uh, you know what I was thinking? What were you thinking? I was thinking last 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 week, or last episode, we uh, we, we mentioned our email, uh, directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. That's front. what it is. Um, because, you know, people don't study in. I think we should list our voicemail again. We really don't get many voicemails. I think the last voicemail we got was actually a wrong number from a Persian man. And, <laughs> and as much as I wanted to put that on the episode, uh, it just it just didn't fit. That's right. I forgot about that. That yeah. was really funny. So um, what's that uh, phone number, Jim? 224-366-9528. You see a movie in the theaters, you just want to give a cr- brief review, you want to talk about the episode last episode, anything like that, we welcome all calls. Yeah, if you walk out of Holy Motors and just go, holy shit, yeah. you know, just call up 224-366-9528. And if you uh, walk out of Holy Smoke and you say, Harvey Keitel's dick! No, it was more, <laughs> his dick was more in the piano, but you get to see Kate Winslet's bush. Yeah. So... <laughs> specifically urinating. Yeah. Um, anyway, let's go ahead, uh, now that we've got that sort of out of the way. Yeah, the very important thing. <laughs> we should talk about what we watched this week. What did we watch this week? Films. The what we watched this week. Vertigo and in the loop. I watch films. Domestic and foreign. Real Bravo Rashomon I watched Imitation Alive Lana Turner made me cry If there was a film we wanted to see Come on over, let's
Let's give it a try. Let's watch films. It's what we watch this week. Films. It's what we want to see. guests to go first what's on your mind well um seeing as we're going to be talking about john carpenter um i did watch i watched two tommy lee wallace directed films and the one that i'll talk about who i guess for people don't know he he uh has worked closely with john carpenter um and worked on halloween i think he was like the production designer and some did something uh, editor, I believe, um, and that could be completely wrong. I don't care, but uh, he directed two sequels, both of which have not really been lauded as classics, mm-hmm. except maybe until now. I don't know because uh, Halloween Three, being one of them, is sort of experiencing a bit of a a comeback. I guess yeah. or a, it's. I mean, it, it definitely benefits from. Seeing it on Blu-ray, I got to. I, I, I mean, I saw the Blu-ray, and you know, the, like a, like the first Halloween and the second Halloween, actually, the the movie was uh, shot by. Oh my God, his name is escaped me. Uh, Dean Cundey. Yeah, Dean oh, Cundey. Yeah. yeah. Um, the lighting that movie looks really good, um, and I think people seeing it on Blu-ray are sort of rediscovering the movie as n- it's not just some you know bit of stupid trash that didn't have Michael Myers. It's actually sort of an interesting singular film in its own right, even if I personally don't think it's too good. But uh, And what was the other one? Well, the one that I was going to talk about is Fright Night Part 2. Oh, man, I really want to see that. I haven't yet to see it. I love the first yeah, I, one so much. It's strange because I, I think there is actually a lot of people who don't even realize that there was a sequel to Fright Night. Guilty, um, right here. Yeah, like, for some reason, this one really went under the radar and it probably doesn't help that the DVD release was really small and I guess it's going on eBay now out of print for a fair hmm. amount of money which I didn't think was even possible nowadays because things are constantly re-released and available to download And but um, I did re-watch it and it was a film that I did watch when I was younger when it came out and I enjoyed and I think it's it's not as good as the first Fright Night, but it's definitely a lot of fun. And, I mean, it shares so many similarities that it's hard not to like it if you do like the first Fright Night. Um, it's kind of a, a similar storyline, only this time the vampire is in Peter Vincent's apartment complex. Oh. And uh, Charlie has been going through therapy three years after his experience with Jerry Dandridge. And he's now kind of accepted the fact that what he experienced was sort of a group hallucination uh, due to the stress of going through this experience with a serial murderer. And so he's kind of written it off that vampires don't exist. And then he sees um, this troop 
of odd looking ghoulish sort of uh they I, I don't know if they're teenagers or what, but I I guess they're they'd be in their twenties. But one of them is I don't know the actress's name, but she's in In the Mouth of Madness. She's uh the the girl that the woman that goes to Hobbs End with uh yeah, she plays Sam Styles, Neal. right? Is that her name, I think? Yeah, yes. Yeah. And she's the um the lead vampire in this and she's supposed to be Jerry Dandridge's Dandridge's sister apparently. But um so she's seeking revenge for his death um and targeting Charlie. And there's some pretty awesome um sort of performance art sections in the film because the idea is that she's a performance artist with her troupe and that's how she gets away with being a vampire i suppose it's sort of like an interview with a vampire antonio banderas and his his touring troupe of actors and she does this performance on the the fright night tv (coughs) within the film where she's doing this sort of vampire transformation (laughs) set crazy african drum music and elephants and the sound <laughs> africa and it's very disturbing they use some really weird makeup effect on her to make her not not to really it's hard to describe it's almost like they're trying to make her look like a man or something it's sort of it reminds me of uh zelda in pet cemetery where it's like that sort of oh right uh-huh. own structure and that, in combination with like the bright vampire eyes and her splashing blood on her face, and these like elephant noises and tribal drums, and I just remember being terrified of that whole segment when I was younger. But it's um, it's got a lot more comedy in it, I think, and um, but it's still fun, and it's still kind of a I, I like Fright Night because it's more of an adventure film than a, a horror film, I think. Uh, this one is is in the same spirit as the first one, so it's definitely worth checking out. Does Evil Ed return by any chance? He does not. Oh, I, I, does. he does have another friend who uh, <laughs> uh, some interaction with the vampire, and he's played by the actor who played Kirk's son in Star Trek Two and Three. <laughs> I believe died of AIDS. Really? Wow. Huh. It said on Wikipedia, it's got to be true. I um, I really like the phenomenon. Uh, I don't think, I wonder if anyone's ever really acknowledged that there's this sort of, the, the horror movie phenomenon of the sequel in which the character is dealing with the trauma of the first film. Yeah. Like, I love that, I love, like, the, probably the, obviously the biggest box office example would be Terminator 2, but, uh. Phantasm 2, which we talked about last episode, um, uh, ha- Rob Zombie's Halloween 2. I really, I really enjoy that. Um, is he is he sort of more vulnerable, or like when uh, when he's denied it, and then once he discovers that that all actually did happen, it wasn't just mass hysteria. Is does he just sort of immediately kick in a badass mode, or do they use that sort vindi- of? He feels vindicated, or do they sort of use that trauma to make him more vulnerable? Well, dude, I mean, spoiler-ish territory, I guess. He, they, they kind of swap back and forth between him and Peter Vincent trying to convince each other and, like, 
Charlie believes he saw his friend being bitten by a vampire in the same way as the first one. For some reason, all of these vampire attacks happen right in front of the window. (laughs) (laughs) And it's the only light that's on in the apartment building. But he believes he saw that, and then he contacts Peter Vincent. And Peter Vincent doesn't think it was what he thinks it was. And then he discovers it was. And then he has to reconvince Charlie. And so it kind of goes back and forth. And meanwhile, Charlie is slowly becoming a vampire um, because he was visited by this this woman at his dorm room, and she um, sucked blood or whatever. You inserted one of her, te- her one of her fangs into a cut on his neck and instigated the vampire transformation. I guess as some sort of slow punishment for killing her brother. Hmm. I, I will confirm that the actor is Merritt Buttrick. <laughs> he died of AIDS-related toxoplasmosis. Oh, man. That's a shame. Uh, yeah. It sounds interesting. It does. Is there any similarities between this, uh, this sequel and uh, Vamp in terms of style and tone? And What's Vamp? Vamp is a... Another similar just that vampire 80s? comedy horror movie. I have a very – that's one of those movies, again, in my mind where I've only seen scenes of it in spurts because I saw it on HBO at like 2 in the morning at, when I was a very young kid. And I don't remember too much of it very well. And I just saw recently it was on Netflix streaming. So I'm like stoked to try and rewatch it at some point. I know, Jay, you're a fan of that one, right? Yeah. I, I mean it's – I guess it's similar – Tonally, yeah. I think Vamp is a little goofier. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I think the thing with Fright Night 2 that I like is there's, and it, this is kind of with the first one as well, just this idea that it's practically, it feels impossible to actually protect yourself from the vampires. Yeah. Like, as soon as he invites one into his house, he's completely, you know, uh, exposed to this terror and and um the way that you know there's a scene where peter vincent of course sees in his mirror that there's no reflection and he leaves this party and right when he steps outside she's standing right there and when he turns a corner kind of like the alley sequence with um fright night one where they're trying to run away from jerry dandridge and just this way the way that they kind of almost cheat the rules where every corner turn this thing's there it, it almost feels like it would be impossible to actually beat these things yeah but some they, they end up doing it um and with vamp i mean when i was a kid i, I think the thing that weirded me out about vamp was grace jones yeah. as a vamp. <laughs> i remember that specifically well to the the scene i was talking about earlier um and also just the weird sort of alternate it feels like it's an alternate universe kind of thing or like mm-hmm. these guys stuck in a place that they can't get out of yep. and that used to be the kid just see this idea of people being trapped somewhere and kind of like in the mouth of madness how sam neil keeps driving back <sighs> yeah. trying to that sort of frustration um, but that's not really present in fright night but it does have the guy who plays the where in Monster Squad, and he was on Lost. He's a character actor. I can't remember his name. Oh, but yeah. Okay. I know what you're talking about. 
Yeah, he plays the werewolf in this film as well. Hmm. He's quite good. He's he kind of is the comic relief. And the Wolfman does have nards, if anyone's <laughs> curious. So yeah, that's that's one of my uh standout Halloween viewings. Good choice. Maybe um, I'll try and do a Fright Night 2 and Vamp double feature if I can in the near future. That'd be fun. Okay, so Patrick, what have you been watching lately? I'm curious. Uh, not a lot. <laughs> um not a lot. I uh I think you got to the movies recently though, didn't you? Yeah, I I saw I I got I went to the theaters twice this month, uh twice in the same week, which is very rare for me. I don't Often I'm not often able to get out to the movies. Did you get uh, your head in the clouds? Yeah, I got my head in the clouds. Um, uh, <laughs> I was gonna I was gonna mention how I saw Sinister real quick, but oh, uh, I'll go ahead and just jump right to Cloud Atlas. Now that you give me that segue. Were you feeling a little sinister? Patrick? Yeah, yeah. I was feeling uh, I was feeling like a hawk, maybe um, of the Ethan variety. Anyway, uh, nice. I saw Cloud Atlas and I loved it. I really loved it. Um, it uh, it's kind of hard to. Like it's you know it's dividing a lot of people and it's kind of hard to really properly defend it without seeing it again. But one of the things I've noticed is that um, like people who don't like it kind of focus on uh, in this film they kind of focus on the micro cloudless case. By the way, in case you don't know, Tom Twyker who directed Run Lola Run and the Wachowskis um, they collaborated uh, for an epic sort of. Um, uh, adaptation, almost, yeah, almost metaphysical uh, epic that spans you know generations and and centuries and genres and where, where six different stories are intertwined and uh, and you know they all have sort of ramifications on each other. It's sort of like the fountain, uh, if uh, I think a little little with an eye a little toward more towards mainstream sort of uh, Hollywood entertainment, mm-hmm. but. Um, so I saw Cloud Atlas, and I really, really liked it. And I, I, I found that a lot of the people who don't like it, they really focus on the micro, which is sort of how does each story work. Um, and if you focus on like, and and if you and if you just look at if you take each story on their own and you ask, is this a compelling story? The answer is for almost all of them, no. Like none of the stories are that great on their own. The uh, there's a very unfortunate. I mean, I guess it's not unfortunate because it it works in some ways. One of the things they do in this film is that they have about the same like seven or so actors playing most of the roles in the film, and so you span that across six stories. You got about seven actors playing about thirty five different parts, um, and these parts they transcend race and they transcend age and they transcend gender. So you'll have men playing women, you'll have white people playing uh, Chinese, you'll have Chinese people playing white, you'll have black people playing white. They didn't. They didn't quite have the balls to make anyone white playing black, but <laughs> just uh, because of the, I thought you know, that would happen for no, some reason. No, just because of the cultural, like you know, there's a there's sure. a cultural stigma there. But um, I hear the makeup is kind of distracting. It is, yeah. That's what I was going to bring up. Is that um, I just and I don't necessarily think it's bad makeup. I don't think I've ever really seen a convincing uh, makeup job in which someone's race has been changed. Like I think honestly, just Robert Downey Jr. in Tropic Thunder. Uh, and even that was kind of silly looking, but it like it actually was kind of convincing. So you'll have these stories where these old, you know, where say it's Hugh Grant, but he's an old man makeup, and it's a very dramatic scene between him and his brother. But it looks like it looks like Bruce Campbell in uh, Escape from L.A. 
Like it looks like the like oh. just huge makeup caked upon these people, and it's super distracting. Hmm. So for about the first hour, I was really having trouble getting into it. It's a very long movie, by the way. Um, but once I was able to get into it, um, what really affected me was the way that it it seamlessly edits. You know, it seamlessly it jumps from story to story. It doesn't transition. Uh, it doesn't like it doesn't have segues for each time it jumps. Sometimes it'll jump between five different stories within a ten second span. No, there's, like title cards. There's saying. no title cards. There's mm-hmm. no. There's no one. It doesn't have to have a character saying, "Let me continue that story I was telling you." And then it jumps to. It doesn't have to have. It's. It's really kind of brave filmmaking and kind of really interesting formally as far as how it decides to tell the story and part of why I say that the makeup you know was only partially unfortunate was you follow it perfectly you're able to follow each story emotionally even when different stories are climaxing at the same time and some of them are really sad and some of them are really exuberant but what's crazy is you're able to follow them emotionally and you don't get sort of whiplash because it's the same same actors are playing every role so instead of having to keep track of 35 different characters, and 35, you just have to keep track of the seven actors. You just have to know, okay, we're here now, so Tom Hanks is playing this. We're here now, Halle Berry is this. Um, and, it's, and so the way it all works as one piece is actually kind of brilliant. And uh, the, hmm. it's a... Uh, what would you say the overall... I don't know, not I guess theme, if you want to be Well, anyone, about it. not just me, but anyone who sees the movie. I mean, the other thing people complain about, and I wouldn't complain about it, but I would definitely say it's true, is that the movie's super obvious, it's super broad, and, there's, and it's not subtle at all. There's no mistaking that the idea is understanding. I don't mind that with the Wachowskis, to be honest. I mean, that's that kind of holds true with The Matrix and, and, and uh, Speed Racer. And it's it was sort of a similar thing with Speed Racer, where you don't expect that you're going to get as emotionally involved as you are. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just somehow tricks you into it from just really committing. Uh, <laughs> tricks you into it. it. Sounds like it sounds very. Uh, it sounds uh, it sounds very malicious when I put it that way. But um, so you know, and I was I was just like and like sort of you know, Speed Racer. Like I was just in tears for so much of this movie. Like there's a good forty minutes of the film where I was just crying throughout the whole thing and. I think I mean a big part of it is that it's a it's a movie about queer issues. It's a movie about you know gender and identity and about and it's a very humanist movie and it's about and the movie's about well I didn't you know to answer your question the movie's about empathy and it's about Yay. just it's just about it's a very you know sort of the grand illusion kind of movie where it's just about breaking down the walls that separate human beings from each other, um, which are all you know things that are very close to me. But more importantly. You know, uh, you know. In addition to being you know a queer movie, which is important to me, in addition to being about empathy, which is important to me, like if you know, just the fact that we've been through an election year, uh, like seeing this movie is very cathartic because so many issues um, in America right now, the problem is empathy. The problem is oh, gay, I, I've, gay I've been people, saying that for a while. Yeah, so gay yeah. people shouldn't get married because I'm not gay and I don't like the idea of gay people getting married. So. I don't want to give them that right, you know. Mm-hmm. Oh, I should be able to tell women what to do with their bodies because I'm not a woman, so I don't have to worry about abortion. I don't have to worry about uh, how difficult, you know, like all of these things, all of these social issues that are like somehow still an issue, like just boggles my mind. They're still an issue in America. It's all about empathy, and it's all, you know, like you can, you know, Mitt Romney and Barack Obama can argue about best 
best fiscal plan, the best way to sort of fix the economy. Or and, whether we need a f- and navy, I genuinely, a stronger navy for crying out loud. Well, I, I genuinely, but I genuinely see points on both conservative and liberal sides as far as the economy and stuff like that. But like just social issues and just having to deal with like so much bullshit this year from politicians. Uh, like who would have thought that that in 2012 they'd be trying to like 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 rape is now a controversial issue like how is that not just a black yeah. and white thing how how is that now being rolled back um to sort of like 1930s sort of opinions of it so this movie is very affecting to me for that reason as well it's a movie i want to see again because i'm sure there's a ton of connections i missed but it's also a movie that I wonder. If oh yeah, I keep hearing people up. who see it a second time get a, an even stronger response to it. Um, now Jay, after after that very long and kind of manic monologue, please go vote. Um, yeah, yeah. By the way, yeah, go vote on Tuesday. Are, are you gonna? Is, is this gonna be out by then? Yeah. All right. Awesome. Yeah, Definitely go vote. Um, Jay, you've seen this movie as well, albeit a while ago at TIFF. Um, I, what do you? What are your thoughts on this? Um, I. I didn't love it, but I enjoyed it. I mean, the thing that stood out the most for me was just the... There's a section in the film where everything is sort of um, becoming a little more energetic and, and action-oriented, I suppose. And and that's where it kind of hit me how it was interesting, how they were cutting between the um, escape of the old people from, from the home and the... Uh, stuff in the future and um point sort of like i guess for me i i enjoyed it on on that sort of visceral sort of editing level um and i agree that you know with what you're saying in terms of the individual stories um and looking at those judging those rather than looking at the whole film uh i think it is kind of unfair um it'd be like you know, eating a hamburger and then only taking the lettuce and saying the lettuce is too, you know, bland and judging the entire hamburger on that. I mean, it's meant to be eaten in one giant delicious mouthful. And um, although I still didn't love it, I'd like to revisit it. As I said before, I I watched it um, kind of in that TIFF festival haze after a late night uh, midnight screening um, the night before, so it's something I'd like to revisit. But I, I think that the in, in terms of the makeup, like the things that most people seem to be talking about, the makeup that didn't bother me too much because I felt like it was self aware. Like the makeup was sort of um, a gag in a way, like it yeah. was tipping to the audience, kind of winking at the audience a little bit, and the the. Uh, Jar Jar Binks esque speak in the the uh, far future segment um, didn't bother me too much, but I, I think just um, I can see how people might complain that overall it's got lofty goals, but it is told in a very accessible way, and it doesn't um, aspire to anything very deep. I think in in its writing and the dialogue and the characterizations, but I don't know. It, it seems to me like this is the one of those films that is populist entertainment that's attempting to achieve something 
more or, el- or to elevate populist entertainment rather than something that's going for art house and missing the mark. Yeah, I yeah, definitely. And, um, that's a, that's a good analogy, uh, with the hamburger. I really like if, even if you, even if this movie annoys you, like the craft, the Wachowskis, like there, this isn't necessarily an action movie. There, there was the mentioned part you mentioned where all the sort of the, there's a bunch of action scenes that are sort of happening at the same time. And it happens a couple times in the movie where, um, where it's where the two different sort of action sequences are occurring in two different stories, and they edit between oh, wow. them, and like you can't deny the craft of the Wachowskis. Like it's really kind of remarkable in that regard. Um, maybe it won't make me cry so much every time I see it, you know. But uh, it's, I think it's, I think it's a movie that people are kind of picking well, on. I've been surprised to hear that. I mean, mo- most people have been saying it's kind of a, a spectacle of sorts and rather it's left them cold. So it's really great to hear that you've had that kind of response to it. Right. Which I mean, makes me look forward to it more it, because it, that's that's what I go to the movies for. I go mo- mainly to be emotionally moved. I mean, that's I, I love movies for the craft, obviously, but for the most part, if I go to ha- have some sort of catharsis or some emotional connection to it, I feel like that's it, it's going to be higher on my list of favorite movies, and I'm not even guarantee you know I'm not even guaranteeing that. Again, it's no, but I mean there are, there are, there are hurdles it has to it has to pass in that regard. I really, um, I mean, it is about storytelling as well. The, the, there's a oh, framing yeah. device in which the whole thing is being told um, in retrospect by Tom Hanks um, in the future. Uh, so, and I think there's there's a lot of kind of clever things it does where each story being told is a different genre. There's a political thriller. There's a fantasy. There's sci-fi. There's sort of a indie comedy as far as the old the, the people in the old folks' home trying to organize a big, uh, you know, trying to, trying to organize. And an there escape. are people who are saying that doesn't work because maybe it's just obviously the comedy doesn't work for them. Right. Yeah. And I, I, that's why I'm saying like it's not for everybody, and I can get that, but. Um, I don't think I think uh, you should. Uh, you know, I, th- I think it's I think it's better. Well, there's, there's even to have stuff, a movie like this. Than there's a movie even like, stuff in Reloaded that put you know makes my jaw on the floor. But I think the only movie there's Reloaded. Gen- I think no. Reloaded leaves me cold. Reloaded feels like they put the philosophy ahead of the storytelling, which and, I like. If just anything, for the intellectual think, stimulation. If anything, I think Reloaded is a good argument for the Wachowskis making Cloud Atlas because Reloaded is then sure. trying to be deep. And trying to tackle big ideas and trying to tackle them, but in... I just didn't like Revolutions. That's like the only movie of theirs I kind of don't like. Well, I don't. I mean, I, I'm I'm not a huge fan of either. Revolutions is obviously worse because the 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 robot fight is so tedious. Yeah. But um, it's pretty. But cool. I think I think it's interesting to compare Reloaded because Reloaded feels so it feels so inert. None of the characters are in control of what's happening next in the story, and it. And it's very cold, and it's very much just people talking about ideas point blank. Whereas this film is a very simple idea, but it the way it's illustrated, and I think that's you know you know each medium, I think each artistic medium has different strengths, and I think movies aren't necessarily as good as say books at going deep into ideas. I think what they're very good at is illustrating the ideas and making yeah. you feel those ideas emotionally and. So in that way, Cloud Atlas feels like sort of the flip side of Matrix Reloaded. Um, so 
uh, people complaining, oh, it's not deep. Well, you know, it's that they're they're like that's what Matrix Reloaded was, and that wasn't. Uh, mm-hmm. I definitely prefer this, but anyway. Well, once I see it, I will report back. Hopefully, you guys get out and see it before it leaves theaters because it's not doing too well. So uh, oh, I'll definitely see it within the next week or two. I want to see that in flight really bad. Mm-hmm. So anyway, that's uh, that's Cloud Atlas. Uh, Boom. Yeah. So um, this is going to be crazy for me. I uh, I've. Uh, I've been kind of under the weather, and uh, I certainly haven't seen as many movies as Patrick has for his edition of the Lightning Round. But it was pretty pretty successful last week. Everybody seemed to enjoy it. There was a good response on Facebook and whatnot. Um, but I've only seen ten movies, and not all of them are horror movies, unlike Patrick's uh, list last week. But uh, I'm willing to give these ten movies uh, a go here for the lightning round, and Patrick's going to give me 45 seconds on the clock here. So I'm really excited for my version of the Director's Club lightning round. Patrick, are you ready to begin? The question, Jim, is are you ready? I don't know. Begin? I'm scared. Just, uh, just let it go with the flow. Okay. Here we go. Ready? Ready. Go. Okay, Poltergeist 2. Um, despite having a very horrendous final act, and maybe that's due to like having a, a low budget or not really having any clear ideas how to end the damn thing, it has some really terrifying moments, including when the preacher comes to the house to steal Carol Ann away. Uh, and, and there's this moment where the, the dad from Coach, Craig T. Nelson, vomits up a tequila worm monster and that has forever haunted me since like the age did the of nine. Full, did the full cast from the first? I mean, not yes. Zelda Rubenstein, but all, no, the, Zelda all the family. Zelda Rubenstein. Really? Back. Yeah, everybody comes back. I was just, under like, the, the final, impression final, the final act is fucking horrible. I was but, under the impression that the uh, they didn't state that it was just uh, Carol Ann. No, no, everybody comes back. Oh, the whole nice. cast, even the even the little brother who uh, gets stuck with braces at one point. Good special effects, though. Good special effects. Speaking of pretty good uh, special effects, uh, another sequel, Creep Show 2, I got to catch up with, and I saw this a very long time ago when I was younger. Really liked this one a bit more on a, uh, upon a rewatch. Saw this many, many years ago. Um, I really liked the first two chapters, a bit disappointed with the last one. Uh, the, the final Hitchhiker story is kind of lame, but the second one, the blob kind of uh, homage, is really solid with some great gore. Jay, you're a fan of Creep Show 2, correct? I am. Yeah, love it. Uh, very, very solid stuff here from George Romero. And uh, once again, I'm a huge fan of anthology films overall. I wish it had five stories like the first one did. But again, you can't go wrong with uh, when you have George Romero and Stephen King sort of collaborating once again. And speaking of Stephen King, hey, Cujo's here. I'd never seen this before. <laughs> and uh, I was pleasantly surprised how He's good... Here. Uh, yeah, not, not literally in the apartment, but I was pleasantly surprised how good it was, although it does take a while. It's kind of a slow burn, right? It's got claustrophobic intensity once this rabid St. Bernard comes uh, into play here, and uh, you got the usual tendency to comment on the death of the family unit, and there's some unnecessary subplots involving an affair and the fa- fa- father's job going down the shitter. But once we get to the entrapment of the mother and the son in the car, I was biting the nails, punching the walls, uh, throwing babies, screaming like a fucking banshee. Cujo, the last, say, 45 minutes of this movie is fucking effective as hell. It's really tight. I'm finally glad I got to catch up with it on Blu-ray. And, uh, oh, Romero is back again. Day of the Dead. Uh, Thanks to uh, hearing uh, the Film Junk Premium podcast and the trilogy of uh, the Dead 
I really, really wanted to check up, uh, catch up with this one again. I haven't seen it in a long time. It's kind of a slow build-up to the really good stuff, but I, I like the character interactions, despite, and I know you pointed this out, Jay, there's a lot of overacting. Um, borderlines on some caricatures here uh, throughout the movie. But, Borderline. <laughs> uh, Romero still, what can you say? He's a clever satirist. Uh, can't say enough about how fucking great Tom Savini's gore effects are in the final 20 minutes. I have no qualms with the ending. I think Day of the Dead is solid. Not nearly as good as the first two, but still very, very entertaining stuff. Hey, hey, Jim, good job you didn't choke on it. (laughs) Now let's get out of the horror genre, shall we? And go to uh, a special screening of Silver Linings Playbook. Now this is exactly my kind of raw romantic comedy from director David O. Russell, who I had the pleasure of meeting. And this is might be my favorite film of his alongside Three Kings. It stars uh, Bradley Cooper as a recovering bipolar patient who goes back to live with his parents and uh, tries to better himself, meets Jennifer Lawrence, who is fucking amazing in this movie. There's chemistry. There's uh, a lot involving their separate histories. I cried four times. This is absolutely one of the very best films of the year. Go see it when it comes out in the end of November. That's Silver Linings Playbook. David O. Russell. Yeah? Yeah. You got three seconds. Really? Uh, the Sessions. Wow. Uh, you get to see a lot of Helen Hunt naked in this movie. Uh, but uh, John Hawks, he's fucking great in this true story depiction of a polio-stricken patient who wants to lose his virginity, so he hires a sex surrogate. And um, so you, uh, sex surrogate is played by Helen Hunt, and they form a bond, and, and it progresses slowly between them. Again, another unfortunate so- a subplot, side plot here with, with Helen Hunt. <laughs> and uh, her her family sort of uh, objecting to their to her profession, which I guess is inevitable. But um, Hawks uh, also receives some very helpful insights from a priest played by William H Macy. It's not a wholly original movie, but again, I was really moved by the depiction of sex therapy. And Hawks will be nominated. Ooh, let's get back to sequel land and horror movies. Hostel Part Two. Not sure why I had problems with it so much the first time, but because I just thought it was a retread. I didn't think it was anything special. Um, but I kind of liked it a lot more this time around. I think uh, I think I like all three of Eli's films. I really do. I think they're great examples of modern horror. And he finds the right balance of comedy and horror and social commentary, shock value. He makes it all flow really well. I think he's probably my favorite uh, horror director right now. I wish he would make more movies. Uh, I, I think he's more interesting even more than Ty West and especially more than uh, Rob Goddamn fucking zombie. And uh, I just think... Um, I think the, uh, the 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 kills in this are especially artistically well filmed. I really like Hostel Part Two a lot. Them, which is a movie I hope you see, Patrick. It's on Netflix. Instant. It's a French horror movie, and uh, it's a home invasion thriller with great claustrophobic tension. It will fuck you up. It was la- later remade into The Strangers. Uh, was it remade or just uh, ripped off? Remade. Okay. Definitely actively remade. Uh, there's no domestic issues between the couple like there is at the beginning of The Strangers. They're actually very happy and in love. But then uh, in, in this version, it's very similar in terms of once the uh, they start hearing strange noises, shit happens. Then all of a sudden, it's one of the it becomes this tight, beautifully filmed uh, horror movie, and things just oh my god. There's a moment involving a keyhole that scares the shit out of me. What can I say? It's only 75 minutes long. Go see it. Smashed! Oh my God! This is a. Uh, it plays kind of like a horror movie, not really. It's about alcoholism, and uh, it's got a great performance from uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead, who sort of steps out of her role as scream queen to deliver a great dramatic turn 
in this sort of updating of the days of wine and roses. And again, it's nothing we haven't seen before in terms of a movie about addictions and self-destructive behavior. And again, uh, Aaron Paul plays her husband, and he kind of just plays a variation of his Jesse character, more or less, because he's uh, addicted to a substance. Bitch, but it felt very drinking. genuine. <laughs> it felt genuine. That's what that movie is. It's all about stopping drinking. But it can inspire people to get help. So I want to give credit where credit's due. It doesn't do anything special cinematically, but it can inspire the right person to go to AA. I think it's a really important movie in that regard. And uh, very real, realistic. So my last movie on the list is a very special one to me. It's the movie that I would say is the gateway to horror movies, and that would be uh, The Gate from 1987, which I watch every single year. It is my probably one of my all-time favorites just because as a kid I loved it. And Jay, this is where I wanted you to chime in, especially because I know you're a huge fan. And I have to say I am very upset with you because I, too, bidded on that poster on eBay. Oh, did you? <laughs> <laughs> And you want it, you bastard. I set it to a 50-pound uh, maximum bid. Yeah. So I was, I was ready to go to 80 pounds. I was ready to go the distance. Yes, you I'm were. Up all- <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead. That's the last one, right? Yeah, no, that's it. You can go off on it some more. Um, yeah, this is. I saw this at the drive-in, our oh. local drive-in, when I was a kid. Wow. And it's blown away by the special effects. Same here. It's kind of a... Um, special movie around here because at the time the kid who plays um, uh, the redhead uh, metal what's his name in the film? Oh, uh, uh, it's not Sam, is it? No. Uh, 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 man, I just watched it too. Anyways, he's played by a, uh, an actor named Louis Tripp yes. who is St. Catharines. And uh, I remember at the time he was on the cover of, of our paper and I had, you know, friends that were friends with him and knew him. And there was always these stories about, um, like, yeah. I have a good friend named Jason who works in effects and he was friends with Lewis Tripp. And when The Gate 2 came out, they went to our local theater to see it and he tried to get in for free because he <laughs> starred in it and they wouldn't let him in. <laughs> And there were two people in the theater. Yeah. But then eventually he ended up, I believe he ended up changing his name to 2012 and working as a manager at a call center here, which my friend worked at and said he was very strange. And whenever people asked him about his experience on the gate, he would not want to talk about it. And huh. I guess he uh, doesn't have the greatest memories. I, I don't know. But. Either way, The Gate is amazing, and it's just another one of those 80s horror films where, as an only child, I got to live vicariously through a little kid with an older sister being uh, pulled around in some sort of weird adventure. Yep. Um, Much like the Blob remake and Return of the Living Dead 2, and uh, having crushes on the older sisters and... Revealing some really fucked up stuff in my head as a, a young only child, and it's a <laughs> that movie. Yeah, no, and the special effects. I mean, ever, like the phone melting and the parents coming back, and then I like all that stuff. Still, like when I see it, I mean, it just brings me back to when I first experienced that as a kid, and I just can't get over how good it is too. And it's so unfortunate that sequel was so bad. Although, have you seen I Madman? 
No, I haven't. You should track that down. It isn't half bad. I, I think it again. It kind of falls apart in the in the final minutes or so, and it, it doesn't necessarily make a lick of sense. But it's really again that it's the same director, and uh, you can see some shades of creativity from the guy who brought you the gate. It's not quite as imaginative, but it it's really a cool concept. It's about a woman who works who works in a bookstore. And she just is kind of obsessed with this one book, and the the character within the story comes to life, and uh, you know it's kind of fantastical in that regard. But yeah, the 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 guy who plays uh, Terry, by the way, is who you're thinking of, and uh, yeah, that's that's one that that every year I watch that movie, and I'm still in love with it more and more. Just, I would I, I would love to I, see a movie about uh, 1980s uh, prop masters in Hollywood. Because this seems to be such a great golden age where yeah. you'd have the you'd have the uh, Zucker brothers in their Naked Gun and the Naked Gun movies always have crazy props where it's like uh, a phone turns into a boomerang or some shit or like oh yeah just really up. really and inventive the, things all like of the that. all of the horror movies had like melting phones and yeah. stuff like like uh, all that, practical organic yeah stuff. and like the the big the big the third act of the film is like the nineties coming around and people being like oh we're just we're not into that kind of comedy anymore. We're sort of sort of the rebirth of independent film, and we're sort of telling more stories about characters now. We don't need all these crazy things, and yeah. it's just about like prop masters cursing Sundance Film <laughs> Festival. <laughs> I still have nightmares about construction workers like falling onto the ground and turning into a bunch of little demons. Yeah, yeah, stuff like that. It's always like great, or uh, like steel bar. Like in an action movie, there would be someone bending a steel bar or something <laughs> like that. <laughs> <laughs> like Arnold Schwarzenegger committing feats of strength. That yeah. was a like golden age for prop masters and people yeah. who made props. And no longer, we're out of it. You know is the you- gate on Blu-ray by any chance? It isn't. Oh fuck! Fortunately, yeah. Somebody needs to get on that. All right, guys. I think that about wraps it up. Mm-hmm. I didn't see as much, but I, I think I did okay. Yeah. Considering. Are we going to do this every episode? No. No? God, no. I don't have time to see that many movies as much. it'd be fun. If we could. I don't think think I could see ten movies every time. Yeah. Every two weeks. I just don't have the time that I used to. I wish I could. Let alone 19. I'm sure Jay could do it. You guys should do that in film junk once in a while. See if you can pull it off. Yeah. Not that I'm saying you want to rip off our stuff. Um, (laughs) Let's talk about the uh, director of the episode. Why don't we? Mr. John John Carpenter. Carpenter. (laughs) <laughs> Why did I turn into Schwarzenegger first? Oh, you turned into Schwarzenegger? I, th- I thought you turned into the guy from Prodigy. John Carpenter, five-star Carpenter is a great director. And he's a composer. He's so influential. Yes. Halloween, Prince of Darkness and the Thing, all scared the shit out of me. Behold his legacy. Remember when Jeff Bridges saved the deer in Starman? When Jack Burton throws a knife into the skull of Lopan Rowdy Piper runs out of bubblegum and kicks ass That dog creature 
such an ugly thing and carpenter. So, John Carpenter's The Thing is a movie I watch once a year and have done so, I think, since 1989 for the very simple reason that, much like Halloween, I'd say it's one of the most effective, incredibly well-executed horror films I've ever seen. Uh, What scares me is this idea of uh, something I like... Uh, called interpersonal tension, not being able to trust yourself or even the environment that you've uh, adapted to. And uh, it shares, the the movie kind of shares this DNA with Cold War paranoia movies, much like the original that it's adapted from, much like something like Body Snatchers. But it came out uh, around the time when the uh, AIDS virus was first being recognized by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. But I think universally it's more or less you know, about this isolation, not being able to trust those around you. But here's how I view it through my own personal lens. It's kind of about being confronted by a region that is most alien no pun intended, most alien to us, which is what's in here, our own insides. We don't really like get to see what's in here. And what happens when we're portrayed by our own bodies? And for me, it, like John Carpenter's The Thing is almost like a Cronenberg movie, only with a lot more levity. <laughs> and there was a lot of talk around the time of this being kind of too graphic and too gory, but I think it's essential to its themes and, most importantly, those... The special effects hold up. They're timeless in how they're presented. What's kind of interesting is I was I, when I was watching it, I was trying to figure if this was a Cold War. Because I think the thing, it, you can definitely read it and all sorts of uh, interpretations into it, but I think it primarily works just as a perfectly executed exercise in the in horror uh, more than, you know, and messages or anything. But I was trying to read it as a Cold War thing. And what's interesting is it almost works as a reverse of the body snatchers. Like... Mm. Because the because the thing as an entity, instead of being one collective mindless um, thing, that every it's all separate, and yeah. then and they all talk about in horror how things are independent of each other, <laughs> which is which to me like if there was a Soviet Union version of Invasion of the Body Snatchers where they were talking about the horror of America and how mm-hmm. they're not unified, <laughs> like that that that's a similar scene would play out. Yeah, but like the thing is, like, you know, at one point we find out, and I still think that the blood test sequence is my favorite thing, maybe in any horror movie ever. The, just the way it's presented. I almost feel like just from the moment the defibrillator uh, the paddles on, that everything from there is something that I just, I cannot get over how incredibly well executed it is, That's how it still freaks me out to this very day. Jay, what. It- this is, you know, it's sort of, you know, it's sort of a silly just to rank the film, but it sort of interests me. What, what's your, what do you think the strongest part of the film is? Um, I well, I think the strongest part of the film is the dog. Yeah, 
That's what I was going to say. The dog actors I've ever seen in a movie. Yeah, the dog uh, is incredible. But I, I think just, you know, I, I agree with all this stuff about the, the sort of paranoia and the relationships. Mm-hmm. I, I love the idea of um, this group of guys being sort of stranded and this idea that, and this comes up in a lot of Carpenter's films where a small group of people or even sometimes one person comes across this plot or conspiracy or threat against the entire world and they're then responsible for thwarting it on their own and a lot of the time they're they're you know disconnected from the rest of society whether it's you know, in, in the thing being away from everything, away from civilization or in Prince of Darkness being trapped inside of this church where there's a battle for basically the universe going on between a group of phys- uh, theoretical physics students and religious people. A, 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 you know, yeah. like love this idea of just a group of people having to handle that situation simply because they've come up upon it. And um, that responsibility. And then the idea and the thing of making them um, co-workers, but in a situation where they have to live together for an extended period of time. So they become very familiar with each other just because they're stuck where they're stuck. And But it's more interesting than if it were, say, family members that were turning um, because even though they know each other and they're friends with each other, it's there's not that sort of hesitation to not sort of uh, kill them. <laughs> kill the other <laughs> They think there's something going on. Like everyone's very independent in this film and taking care of themselves. So it creates these interesting singular dynamics and everyone's sort of bickering at each other and not trusting anybody. Um, and then the the other big thing that I like about it is it's just the most terse, economical, efficient brand of storytelling that just deals with the situation at hand. And there's very little, if Filler. any, talk about, you know, my life back home or my why I took this job or why I am who I am. Like you, you discover who these characters are through their actions in this situation. And they, they do end up kind of, you can kind of define them in generally, but it's because of what's going on and how they're reacting to it. Mm -hmm. And I just love that, you know, John Carpenter really cut the fat on this thing and created something that's so economical and in the storytelling. And I mean, even I love John Carpenter, but this movie almost feels above what you, what he seems to be capable of. Like, I, yeah, I, I, yeah, I know. <laughs> it, it's like a Toby Hooper type thing with Poltergeist, even though people claim that Spielberg ghost directed, it's like you watch Poltergeist and there's such a, a grasp on that film. And then you watch, you know, um, whatever other Toby Hooper movie where he's very different and very sort of more chaotic. And with Carpenter, he's just, he's so restrained in the thing. And he's got such a grasp on the storytelling, the framing, the direction, the acting. Like the performances are great in this film. And um, 
that's you know that's why I love it. It's just very rewatchable, and uh, all of the elements sort of come together to create a, a awesome cinematic experience. I really love with this and with Prince of Darkness that um, like Prince of Prince of Darkness especially, and we'll talk about more of that later. But it's, it's essentially a slasher movie. Um, but unlike instead of instead of just having fodder for the kills, instead of just having people to be killed, you're you're dealing with actual intelligent people mm-hmm. who are trying to deal with the problem and are responding logically and to the best of their ability. And that's In what the makes moment. that what, yeah. that's what makes the thing so exciting is that at no point it, it, does the film seem like it's cheating, um, even though. Um, you know, if this movie was made today in sort of the you know post Shyamalan kind of Christopher Nolan world, it would be more of a puzzle trying to figure out exactly when each member got infected and who was infected at one point. And like John Carpenter is not interested in that. John Carpenter has admitted in the in the inter in the like in the commentary for the film, like uh, he doesn't exactly know at what points who is who's infected and who isn't. What he's interested in is maximizing the paranoia and he's maximizing the tension and the horror. Um, it's not like a puzzle, but I love that uh, there's at no point does someone act in a way that, you know, people get emotional and people turn on each other. And if they didn't turn on each other, you know, they'd maybe be able to beat this thing. But at the same time, uh, it wouldn't be logical for them to not turn on, like for them to just trust each other. So you have this conundrum um, where, where you just like them, like, at no point is the audience ahead of them. There's no dramatic irony where uh, you are you're already suspecting something and you're waiting for the them to catch up. And it's very exciting in that way that you're right there in the moment at all times. Um, I do want to talk about the dog sequence because when I watched it again, I realized that it's probably – like you said about the blood test. I think the dog sequence is probably – one when the, the most, dog is contorting and yeah, when okay. the dog is put in the kennel with the other dog, it's mm-hmm. probably one of the most amazing sequences in all of horror. Not just because yeah. of how perfectly it's edited and put together, but what it does for the rest of the film. And that is, uh, you know, this isn't necessarily a slow burn. It it builds up for a good twenty minutes where you're not sure what's happening, um, but the payoff doesn't come at the end. The payoff comes about you know at the end of the first act. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's also interesting rewatching it too because you know, after you know, after you've seen it, you know why that dog at the beginning is running and why they're well, yeah, they're chasing and, and, after you, have, him. and you, of course, I mean, even the first time viewing, you should be suspecting something is up with yeah. the dog. That there's the scene where the dog walks into the person's room and you don't know who it is, mm-hmm. and then the camera fades to black. Another interesting technique that I don't think Carpenter's ever really used, um, but also <laughs> increases tension in the audience because. We don't exactly know how much time has passed in between scenes when he does that. And um, and because we know that the thing can work so fast, there's that sort of resets us. And we think that we can keep track of definitely who is and isn't – who it hasn't been affected. But you mm-hmm. can't. But, OK. So the dog sequence, number one, um, it's like really you know well edited. As Jay mentioned, the dog actor is incredible. Yeah. Um, the – like if you think of any other this is and this again this is 1982 the idea of crazy over the top gore and makeup effects wasn't really established as a horror thing yet um maybe with alien well it, again Just alien a- is a single creature mm-hmm. whereas i'm talking more about maybe the nightmare on elm street series the way that 
you know the giant Freddy worm and yeah. like where and the uh, and the marionette with the veins, you know stuff like that. Where the focus is, we'll use gore in crazy, inventive, you know, kind of ways. Any other movie, the climax would be the dog's head oak blossoming open into a into this disgusting Gory flower, disgusting bloody flower. I watched the I rewatched the sequence again today with my girlfriend, and every time she's like, "All right, I'll watch it for sure this time." <laughs> and as soon as the dog head split open, she's like, "Nope," and she just sees like veins coming out. And what's crazy is, okay, so that would be that would be like a climax in any other film. And it keeps going, mm-hmm. and the dogs are barking, and alarms are going off, and every time you cut back to the thing, it is mutated more, and suddenly there's an eyeball in uh, up top, and suddenly more things are opening up, and, and there are tentacles, and it's spraying this goo on this dog, and you... And there's that amazing... Uh, there's that amazing part where the dog is chewing chain link off the fence trying to get out. Shit escalates so quickly and gets so out of hand and it creates a creature that is so gross and so transgressive and so unlike anything you've ever seen. The rest of the movie, you are on red alert for the whole – like there's not a dull moment. It doesn't matter if it's just McCready sitting at – you know, sitting in his room dictating like – like at this point, John Carpenter has already told you that all bets are off. You are not safe. We will not spare you. (laughs) Well, that's because he knows how to orchestrate the, that sort of visceral right. reaction. But it's play, But it's also – it's not just the way that sequence works, which is incredible. Again, the dog's barking is so ang- – it, it's so anxious and it – And he's so just, good at setting up the, the environment that you already know, oh, they're all in this one right. claustrophobic Absolutely. setting. Absolutely. And, and it's placement. That scene's placement in the film, like just – it has ramifications over the whole thing that – even though it's actually quite a while before you see another effect that spectacular in which the defibrillator, you know, goes through, like, mm-hmm. you are just on red alert. And that sequence is so disturbing, especially the part where the tendrils are wrapping around that great uh, shot that they sort of did by, you know, reversing footage where the tendrils yeah. are wrapping around the dog. It's so, like, disturbing. It's not played for, it's not played for, look how cool this is. It's not played mm-hmm. for, oh, this is so interesting. It's not played for, look how crazy gory we can make it. It's really played for maximum. And you get a real dis- human moment with yeah. uh, that uh, one guy's reaction yeah. to the dog it's, being it's never, shot. Yeah, it's never disconnected from, like, even in the midst of all of this fucking monster happening, He, you see his, you feel his pain from one of the dogs being shot. Like, that moment defines the movie for me. And, uh, I mean, the whole film is perfectly made. So I, would, I don't want to imply that it goes downhill from there. But, like, that, that sequence to me is probably one of the greatest in all of, in all of horror. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like, I was... I, w- I watched it a couple times. Uh. I just remember the first time I saw the movie, and uh, you know, after um, they uh, torch that, uh, you know, after the doctor gets killed, and you know, he his arms get taken in from the body after he puts the defibrillator paddles in there, and I, the first thing I thought when I first saw that, um, you know, his head had separated yeah. from the body and turned into like the spider creature, what I said in my I might even said it out loud the first time I saw it. I was like, you've got to be fucking kidding me. And then the character said the exact same thing. you know. <laughs> and that to me was like, I'm in tune with this movie, but also Carpenter just knows the perfect moment to deliver a line like that. 
and these characters are very yeah. human in their response and, to, to seeing something like and, that. And that sequence is so tense and upsetting that he knows he can get away with something that is tonally maybe a, a little more silly in mm-hmm. which a head turns into a spider and he's able to get away with that it doesn't deflate the tension it doesn't just it doesn't betray the sort of bleak tone that came before and then it has a justifiable reason for existing and then it leads to you know McCready having this epiphany right. and 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 he really threads a needle as far as the characters go cuz not everyone there there's one sequence in the when they're sort of in the hallway and they're all pointing guns at each other um there's one sequence where uh after the, uh, I can't remember. I can't remember the, all the actors' names, but the the guy who's the leader with the pistol after he realizes that no one can trust him because he was one of the only people with access to the blood. Yeah. Um. He hands his pistol over to someone else, and at that point, I didn't realize that, that person was even on the base. Like that person, and he. And what's great is his immediate response is, "Oh, I couldn't do it." Like, <laughs> and you know that because you haven't known. Like, he threads a needle as far as giving us just enough characterization without doing like like Jay said without going. So far into oh here's my backstory and man I just need to get home I got kids and you know this is crazier than the stuff I saw when I was in Vietnam like you know <laughs> like he he threat he he's able to you know characterize the people just enough that you're based invested on their in them. reactions in the moment right, that you're invested in them but not so much that the idea that any one of them could be a thing without you realizing it mm-hmm. isn't an option because. It's not that you know the characters so well that you would know if they're acting a little strangely, you know? Uh, it's, not that it's, it's not that you can sort of detect it. You're just in the dark, as much in the dark as anyone else. Um, so I really, I really, that's like, John, did John Carpenter write this himself or did he write it with someone? I'm pretty sure he wrote it himself. It's an amazing bit of screenwriting. As, as much as credit he gets as a director, it's, it's a pretty great bit of screenwriting uh, as well. Yeah, I know he wanted to be more faithful to the original uh, short story, but clearly, and I know we mentioned this on the first uh, John Carpenter episode, but his favorite filmmaker was, was Howard Hawks. And, you know, sort of we've joked around about his tendency to remake Rio Bravo in various incarnations, but it's sort of a good scenario and that idea of getting a, a group of people banding together in a in a certain claustrophobic setting in order to reason them their way out of a situation or just to sort of adapt accordingly is something that in any if any filmmaker utilizes that scenario I'm usually on board as long as the execution is there and maybe that you know originates because I grew up mostly loving carpenter films and these types of movies and even uh, starting out to watch some, like I, I definitely gravitated towards that setup. Whether, even if it was like in a Rambo kind of a situation, just the idea of one man taking on an army of people, or just overcoming the odds, and you know trying to figure out how the hell is this person gonna? Even if it was implausible, just seeing it happen was like an you know an incredible feat. What's what's kind of crazy about the whole Rio Bravo thing is I didn't see Rio Bravo until after I saw so many of John Carpenter's films. Mm -hmm. Rio Bravo isn't that much like Assault on Precinct 13. Like, Rio Bravo is There's certain homages to it. Well, no, no. It's like the plot is and sort of what happens in it is. But the the tone of it is completely like Rio Bravo is not a tense movie. Rio Bravo is actually pretty laid – 
Like you think that yeah, they're oh, not just trapped in the jail right. all the time. Um, so it's like there's so anyone who says oh we're doing the John Carpenter thing where we're doing Rio Bravo like mm-hmm. they're probably actually just doing the John Carpenter thing. They're actually just responding to precinct on assault on precinct thirteen. Like yeah. Rio, like John, like what John Carpenter did was, and what he does so well is he is able to distill uh, what is effective into just these very uh, bleak kind of exercises in horror. And obviously, the thing, like you've mentioned, like there's a lot of different subtext you can read into it. There's reasons it resonates beyond just it's well edited. But like you know, I look at the thing, I look at Halloween, and it's. And I look at the action, you know, some of the action sequences, and they live, uh, which we'll talk about later. Like, um, it's just about him distilling really exciting filmmaking and tense moments and ignoring sort of all of the character bonding Mm -hmm. and stuff that you see in Rio Bravo or, uh, say, Sergeant York, which is another film that he actually uh, tends to reference a bit. Now, Jay, as a guy who's, uh, you know, studied film and made some films, I mean, what are some of the uh, techniques that Carpenter uses that you respond to, like some of his, um, you know, lighting and uh, just some of his photography choices? I mean, obviously, one thing that I, I that's always stood out for me is his synthesized scores, and what makes the thing so distinctive is the fact that he, uh, um, you know, Brought upon, brought on uh, Ennio Marconi for this score, and the idea that you know, just like having an co- amazing collaboration here was so effective. I love this score more than pretty much almost any other score he's done. Uh, but I'm just curious as to some, like obviously, he, Carpenter is one of those incredible uh, filmmakers who knows how how to film in scope. You know, yeah. Um, well, just quickly, first off, a, a retraction and, and correction. Mm-hmm. Apparently, the thing was written by Bill Lancaster, which I, I guess he passed away hmm. at a young age. And so it's hard to keep track what Carpenter wrote and what he didn't write because of all the pseudonyms yeah, that he uses. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, I guess he did not write the thing. But in terms of the the filmmaking, I mean, Carpenter... He's really great with the sort of uh, anamorphic widescreen, right? And his his compositions. I mean, he's really almost obsessed with uh, symmetry, as Kubrick is. Like you, you always see in Carpenter's films, hallways or lines of people standing, like you know whether it's assault on precinct 13 and they look out a window and there's like a line of gang members or prince of darkness you yeah. look out a it's a line of uh hobos <laughs> or um he's just very obsessed with symmetry and he makes great use of the the panaglide camera and but like i said with the thing it seems to be if, at least in my opinion stands out as a film that isn't totally um full of his sort of, uh, you know, stylistic uh, flourishes and signatures. It, it's a movie that is working. It kind of stands out amongst his work, although you can see things here and there. Um, he's just, you know, he's a very controlled director. He very rarely uses handheld camera. Um, a lot of the time the camera's locked off or it's it's 
either Steadicam or on a dolly, which is interesting because the opening shot of the thing is a handheld camera um, looking up the side of a mountain with the helicopter flying over. So right away, it kind of breaks away from his hmm. normally trolled aesthetic. Oh, yeah. Um, but I, I know, Patrick, you had mentioned earlier with Sinister being um, a movie, a found footage movie in which in the movie footage is found. I think The Thing is an early example of that with the footage of the Norwegian camp uh, excavating the alien ship oh, at yeah. Vincing uh, video footage of them forming a line around the, again, a Carpenter-esque symmetrical positioning of, of characters around the shape of this ship to show its size. Maybe that's where he got it from because that I believe that image is in the original as well. Yeah. Uh, but um, yeah, all of that found footage stuff that they bring back from the camp with them is hmm. I, pretty creepy as well. I think I think even more so in uh, in Prince of Darkness. I think the scariest oh. part of Prince of Darkness is the um, psychically broadcast video footage of the dark figure in the church. Yeah. Um, Good lord. That's probably the don't watch that with single- you're in a flu and da- induced state. <laughs> yeah, we talked. We uh, Jim, me and Jim were talking about that because uh, last because last episode I talked about how it actually was too scary for me because I was pa- I was so tired and I knew I was about to pass out and the the nightmares and everything were so vivid and scary and Jim apparently he saw it under similar circumstances except he had a flu so yeah sucked. <laughs> <laughs> um, apparently, the, the, yeah. I mean, I don't want to. I, I don't want to be that guy at your dorm who tells you great movies to smoke pot to. But uh, if you're going to be sleep deprived, you know, Prince of Darkness might be too much for you. Well, one thing I noticed too is like, there's again, he he utilizes the full frame so effectively, and he has to. I mean, you think of the challenge. He has tight spaces, and he has like tw- yeah. up to twelve people in a single scene gathered around a you say a, a refrigerator full of leaking blood. blood you know, yeah. like, like and they're about just, to confront McCready, and like you see how one hand has the like scalpel or whatever like hidden away, and and you know it's like he just knows how to capture your attention, make you pay attention to everything that's going on, so you're constantly on edge, so you're constantly making sure that. Okay, if something's about to happen, I want to be sure of it. You know, I want to be sure, yeah. paying attention to every little thing going on. Um, I, I want to ask real quick because last up, last time we covered John Carpenter, um, Phil Noble Jr. Uh, brought up an interesting point, which is that uh, that every time that John Carpenter worked with Kurt Russell, he got to he had Kurt Russell basically play a different star that he wish he could have worked with. Like, <laughs> like he's kind of Clint Eastwood in Escape from New York. He's Elvis in Elvis, and he's sort of John Wayne in Big, Big Trouble, Trouble in Little China. Is in, in, I, one of the things that's really remarkable about the thing is that Kurt Russell is in it, and Kurt Russell is subdued. He's not playing it up. He's not, he's not, uh, you know, he, he's not chewing scenery. He's not... It's kind of like, regular Joe. You know, like even his big, his big one-liner is "Well, fuck you too." Like that's, uh, is I, I was wondering, I was curious if you guys is that a is that a specific actor or is that just is that the absence of what he was doing with Kurt Russell in other films? Yeah, not that I'm aware of. Not the word. Yeah, I'm not sure. He's he seems pretty featureless in this, mm-hmm. except for the beard. Yeah, and the sombrero. 
Again, little touch, <laughs> little touches like that sombrero as he's flying a helicopter. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it's <laughs> it does it does add a little bit of flavor as well as you know just just stuff like the cook making food on roller skates. Just well, uh, just the right touches to make the you know people feel real and lived in and maybe a little crazy, yeah. but without it being campy and without it being silly and stuff like that. Yeah, they don't come across as caricatures. I know that uh, some of the reviews when they first came out just uh, sort of felt it was just like a, a you know, well, a gr- Ebert called it like a great barf bag movie. Yeah, and- well, last episode last episode we talked about uh, Bay of Blood, Twitch of the Death Nerve, and uh, dedicated listener and dear friend Robert Reinecke actually sent us a article. Mm-hmm. Um, it was a scan of an old, uh, I, I don't think it was Fangoria, but it was a similar magazine. And it was a review of Bay of Blood, and from the context of the late seventies, I think when Bay of Blood came out, or was it? I can't exactly remember, but it was yeah, it was the mid seventies. In the context of that film, like that film just had no plot, and it was stupid, and all the plot was, and you know, the story was dumb, and the characters were silly. Mm-hmm. But in retrospect, looking at it from the from the slasher genre that it created. Uh, you know that it sort of helped create. It's actually really fun and playful, and you know, cinematically inventive and stuff. I think the same thing. You know, looking back at it from from the advantage of knowing what you know what eighties horror was like and how this helped create the idea of eighties horror and effects and stuff like that. This is so, it, you know, you look at this compared to uh, you know so many other films. The way it utilizes its effects are so much greater. The mm-hmm. way it combines the re- very visceral and gross-out moments with paranoia, yep, and how they're not—they're not just thrown at the screen. They're used as punctuation to yeah, scenes. it's not for, and, all just for shock value, right? It means something. It's—it's it's used because that's the best possible climax the the uh, the the scene can have. You know, in retrospect, the thing is great, but it's easy to see in 1982. It'd be just way too dark and way too hopeless and way yeah. too disturbing. Again, again, that dog, that dog scene is ups, is genuinely upsetting. Um, yeah, they couldn't handle it. Damn it! <laughs> I mean, right. he took. That's the thing. Carpenter just he took this pretty hard. The reviews were yeah. really harsh. It was considered a, a huge bomb and failure for him. And uh, it's it's a shame, but it, you it's know. found its. I mean, it's it's not a cult film. It's it's wide. It's now widely accepted as oh, for one sure. of the greatest horror films ever made. So, and it's in his lifetime, you know. Yeah. And and you know he's getting money. You know he gets money from when the remakes are made. He gets money from the film from the video game and Which stuff like that. Which is kind of what he's all about now. Yeah. <laughs> so so I will I'm I will say for, that I'm happy I will for say him. that that the story of John Carpenter making the thing has a happy ending. And the fact that Carpenter's run was like three movies in a row: The Thing, Christine, and Starman, all came out back to back within three years. Astonishes me because I love all those movies. I mean, for different reasons and. I think there's more nostalgia attributed to the latter two, but I think they're all, you can again you can find like a singular consistency to his work. Although all three of those movies are very different tonally, I just think he's got an assured sense of craft and storytelling. And even if like Christine wasn't a passion project in the yeah. way the thing was, I'm and the thing apparently uh, from again I listened to the commentary today, mm-hmm. um, and he said it was he mentioned that it was his first studio film. Um, before he had been making, making sort of independent films that were then later distributed distributed by studios and stuff. And 
like it, it you know in so many ways you could look back at the best films of any director and see that it's just all the right pieces falling into place at the right time um and this is the best possible studio John Carpenter film in which the studio did not fuck with the tone they didn't they didn't fuck with the characters they didn't yeah. There's no compromise. They didn't ending. water it down, but they afforded him the budget for, say, those amazing matte paintings of the ship. Um, some of those matte paintings are just really fantastic. I was I was pointing that out to my girlfriend. She didn't believe. Like I told her, you know, they didn't build a giant ship in the middle of you know they blizzard. They just they just paint matte paintings. She goes, oh shit, that's a painting. Like like those paintings are really incredible, and yeah. the, those effects would not be able if it if it was still an independent film. That dog scene probably would end with the the dog's head blossoming into a blood bloody flower, like, and it so, in you know the the way that serendipity is just sort of it's just all the bright pieces falling in the right place. This is the perfect John Carpenter studio film, and I think later on in his career you'll see a lot of studio films that are less Carpenter and more studio. And mm-hmm. and for me, it's a perfect horror movie. Yeah, absolutely. Um, is there um, anything else you'd like to add, Jay? Yeah, before we move final, on to they live final thoughts. Um, I guess another thing about the characters, I, I just like this idea of in films like this where the person that seems to be making the most sense is kind of the villain in a way where, um, like for example, Mr. Pink in Reservoir Dogs, yeah. he's, not, <laughs> he's the guy who's making the most sense but it's not what what you want to hear. Like you're you're kind of siding with the more emotional responses. And in this film, Blair, um, Wilfred Brimley, who kind does kind of lose his mind, but he loses his mind with good reason. You know, he's just trying to stop this thing from spreading um, after seeing this computer simulation, and um, it it does come across as completely crazy but he's probably the only person who's kind of doing the, the the right thing and making the decision on behalf of the entire team that they're going to put an end to this thing immediately um which is kind of in the end it, it, it's muddled a little bit because he ends up being taken over by the thing mm. But, I, I mean, I think for most of his time in that shed locked away, he still is uh, Blair. Like, I, it seems like the defining moment is when he's no longer wearing his glasses that he's the thing. But um, I, I just like films that provide you with that sort of dynamic where it's like the, the person who's killing the dogs is the person you immediately have a, a negative reaction towards, even though it makes the most sense. Like you have to kill the dogs. Absolutely. The dogs have to the, the thing and you don't want to risk one of the dogs exploding when you're sitting near it. So you kill all the dogs. Um, it's so the those one pe- who's being very pragmatic about it. Yeah. And- I mean like Ripley in the first alien when she won't let them back onto the ship. Um, the people who have to make those hard decisions right. are uh, interesting to me. And I, I think McCready, even though he does that as well, it's kind of interesting describing him as someone who's featureless um, in, in terms of this film as maybe a choice to, to sort of help him remain uh, uh, tough to read in terms of whether or not he has been taken over. So maybe dialing down 
those characterizations on someone like him might be a, a service to the audience to make it a little tougher to trust him. Um, but I, I, I think overall it's those character dynamics, even though they're very, they don't go too deeply into the characters' histories or backstories. There's enough there to really latch on to these, these people. And of course, surrounding that is just all of these amazing set pieces, which blow my mind. Yeah. And ending. I love the ending as well. Yeah, we should probably ask the million-dollar question. Do you think Childs was the thing? I mean, I think the film makes it purposely ambiguous. I think it's. I, I think the film would resonate more if they're not, and they just die in the cold, and that's just they just do their duty, and they just that's what they do what they need to do. But if you look at how the film actually plays out, I do think he's the thing, because the idea that he thought he heard something and then got lost in the snow, um, but then there was... There was a good like five minutes of explosions where he couldn't find his way back, despite the fact that the whole base was on fire. Yeah, um, and it doesn't, doesn't make logical sense. Right. That so I, I think Childs is a thing, but um, mm-hmm. I think that I mean I should say I think the evidence point. Um, uh, I think the evidence is maybe not as uh, ambiguous as it would ideally be. Well, that's kind of kind of come full circle too. From the very beginning, we're introduced to McCready. <laughs> bless you. We're introduced to McCready. Um, uh, playing a computer game, playing a simulated chess game on the computer, and what does he do at the very end of it? He gives the computer a drink of whiskey to kill kill the computer. Mm-hmm. And what does he do with Childs at the very end? He gives him a drink of whiskey. Yeah. That's so there could be a correlation there. I, um... Yeah, I, uh... Because like- he is kind of play, playing chess throughout the movie, trying to, you know, playing chess I, with people's lives. Going, going back what, uh... Going back what... Uh, Jay said, "I I also like how it, it gets flipped, and once our once our uh, once our sympathy is with McCready, logically speaking, what they should do is not let McCready back in because they just found mm-hmm. evidence that he's a thing, yeah, and they shouldn't trust him, and he's now threatening to kill them all just to save himself at right. that point. So it's funny that at that point we're then we're saw we're siding with the person who." Uh, is acting sort of illogically out of just self-preservation. Even, Jay, Jay, where do you stand? Even though, but yeah, towards the ending, where do you think, Jay? Um, I'm not sure. I know I read, uh, this is dumb, but apparently the video game that came out is supposed to be canon. John Carpenter has claimed it canon. Uh, and I guess um, Childs freezes and... McCready is rescued. Yeah, I did play. That's actually not a bad. That's not a bad video game. The mechanics are kind of broken because you have teammates and you have to like give them ammo every time they run out of ammo. It doesn't automatically do it. So, but it's actually kind of a very tense and exciting game. But I agree. It doesn't matter if John Carpenter says the video game is canon or not. You know what we have is the film, and that's what we have to base our opinions of the film on. You know, yeah. the 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 thing is, you know, despite the pre make or whatever you want to call it, and despite the video game, the Meh. thing the thing is not a world that John Carpenter has created. The thing is not a mythology. The thing is a story. Um, so, yeah, the thing lives in all of us. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it lives in our hearts until until we no longer live. Um, Thank. Yeah. Uh, I think it 
maybe then that would be a good opportunity to move on to the Earth is being acclimatized. They are turning our atmosphere into their atmosphere. We are like a natural resource to them. Deplete the planet, move on to another. They want benign indifference. They want us drugged. We could be pets. We could be food. But all we really are is livestock. Our impulses are being redirected. We are living in an artificially induced state of consciousness that resembles sleep. The poor and the underclass are growing. Racial justice and human rights are non-existent. They have created a repressive society and we are their unwitting accomplices. They Live is about a wrestler who just wants to live the American dream, but unfortunately, <laughs> he lives in a Twilight Zone episode. Um, kind of. Yeah. And what's interesting is um, uh, the movie doesn't end after where the Twilight Zone, where the where the Twilight Zone episode would normally cut back to Rod Serling. Um, the, you know, uh, but no, it's about Roddy Roddy Piper. He's a drifter. He's he came from a town that's been dried up. <coughs> And he's going to a town – he's now in a city that appears to be dried up and that, or that's on the verge of being dried up. And uh, he discovers something sort of sinister. Um, he discovers footage in his attic. Uh, he discovers something sort of sinister going on with the upper class. I, I want to – they live is, of course, a – you know, it's no it's, – it's certainly, you know, certainly not subtle satire. No. Um, about, you know, about, uh, about sort of the Reagan era uh, and about sort of class warfare and about propaganda and advertising and stuff like that. Um, but I would like to ask you guys uh, what you guys think of the film, not just the satirical elements, which are – which, you know, which range from a little too broad to just perfect depending on the scene – but uh, how, what you think of the the film sort of as a whole as a sci-fi action kind of movie? Because it's a lot. I mean, we were talking about how perfect the thing is. It's a lot shaggier. It is definitely and a lot shaggier. more lopsided. It's kind of goofy in that way, and uh, I don't mind that so much. I think uh, it plays almost like you know, it's it's kind of a sci-fi action movie. Maybe uh, has some like Repo Man quality to it. Uh, you know the social commentary is there because that's you know that's sort of Carpenter and kind of like a Romero kind of mode, but I also see it as like a Philip K. Dick concept because he has that idea of this false constructed reality of consumer culture and instead of having like a drug to reframe what you're looking at this time it's actual sunglasses, um, but you know I think at a, at its heart it's kind of this goofy B movie too because of you know when he actually puts the sunglasses on there's the black and white sort of look and feel to the movie to way that the way the spaceships look like that's almost like you know an homage to the 50s science fiction movies and I think the the the, 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 big, al- the alien makeup effect the alien I was just gonna say that the, the drawback to, to the movie is for me is the alien makeup well effects. what's funny is I was thinking that and then you said that you saw the black and white and the way those ships those sort of observant ship looked as yeah. as, as as references to 50 sci-fi and then so suddenly maybe that's the, alien, not so bad. the alien makeup makes sense in that regard as well as it being sort of uh 
Because yeah. it's definitely lo-fi, like, especially and... especially when you watch it and you compare it to the thing. The makeup effects definitely feel like a low budget kind of. And whereas movie. I love the scores throughout the majority of his career, uh, especially the Thing and Prince of Darkness. This one is way too repetitive for me, and the da da dum dum. Like that's just that's. I mean, I'm not saying it needs you know needs to be uh, you know something bouncy and you know more along the lines of. Uh, you know, crazy synth bass kind of music, but it's it's just it's it's a little too repetitive for me throughout the movie. And uh, I mean, I guess it fits. He's got some harmonica going on, and I guess that sort of fits with some of the earlier scenes being. You know, uh, we're following Rowdy Piper around and everything. Well, yeah, it opens like a Western. Oh, yeah, it opens like a Western. Let's go ahead and double back, Jay. Uh, how do you sort of feel about the film as a whole? Um, I <clears throat> I love They Live, but. You know, a lot of these movies are probably uh, sort of affected by nostalgia because I mm-hmm. watched these films when I was a kid and grew up with them, and I've seen them quite a few times. But I'm not, you know, um, it's not like I'm not aware that it takes a long time to get started. Right. You know, the half hour is pretty much him just hanging around the shanty town yeah. and a jobs and stuff and uh, even after that initial scene where he finds the sunglasses and goes on his rampage that ends with him in meg foster's apartment which is that was the one scene as a kid i remember being like the kind of zone out scene Mm -hmm. um but i i can't i i'm so familiar with it that I, i i guess i just don't really uh, hold any of that stuff against it. I mean, I I would never argue against someone who does, but for me, I just uh, I enjoy the film as a whole. And I, I mean, I I think it's clear that it's more of a, a '50s sci-fi throwback than anything else. Like I would say, the Reaganomic stuff and the um, you know conspicuous consumption and all that sort of. Uh, stuff is just kind of the it's almost secondary like you like with an invasion of the body snatcher story every time that movie's remade it means something else and within yeah. the time that it's remade but i mean they're not making the film to tell that side of the story or to get that point across they're making the film first and foremost to make a b movie uh, it, it's. I mean, at least with They Live, I think. And that is just what he's adding into the mix to give his satirical side and his, you know, um, body snatchers relevance in the 1980s. I think first and foremost, it's just supposed to be an action science fiction film. So I never really hold the... Although I like the addition of the satire and the commentary... I never really hold it against the film in regards to how blunt it is sometimes. <laughs> I feel that it's it's of that genre that you incorporate this sort of commentary. Um, and I mean, it's clear he's not taking the commentary too seriously because at the end he he implies that not only are the rich and the powerful, but also Siskel and Ebert, who, and anyone <laughs> who talks poorly about violent movies are also the problem, the quote-unquote problem, so... 
Right. I don't think he himself takes the. I think I. I think he, I don't think he himself takes the sort of the social commentary in, in as high regard as some people do. No, but there are definite definite lulls that sort of prevent it from being consistently um, engaging in the way that, like, you know, I, I sort of blow it in my you know in my mind i in, in hindsight i was like in, as a kid i'm like oh my god this is all about like him kicking ass and chewing you know chewing bu- chewing bubblegum and you know like it's a full blown science fiction action movie through and through but no you're right there is the the sequence with uh, meg foster there's a, a moment where keith david and um roddy piper go into the hotel and there is that sort of backstory like you know my daddy didn't treat me right kind of moment where we get that, and I, I wouldn't say it's bad, you know, and I'm not saying it should be like once Keith David finds out shit that they should just both take guns and start shoot, blowing away aliens left and right. Um, you know, I like the, I like the, again, I like the idea of when they start banding together and start making a plan, uh, but it, it does seem to focus more on being a confrontation movie. Uh, in the latter half, I, uh, I, I, the reason I referenced Twilight Zone early on is because the movie. What the craziest thing about the movie to me is that it really does feel like it just is a one movie for thirty minutes, and then it becomes a completely different movie. Where it's this movie about this guy, and he has this conversation with Keith David about he just wants an honest day's work for an honest day's pay, and he believes in America and all yeah. this stuff, and it's about him sort of discovering that. But then. Out of nowhere, he snaps and starts killing people, like, completely unmotivated. <laughs> the He's, death of idealism. Like, he decides to start killing aliens, and it is almost like there's a, literally an edit in which um, the movie goes from being an above-average episode of, a, of, of the 80s Twilight Zone to a sci-fi action movie in which he's this badass. Because he really, despite the fact that he's goddamn Rowdy Roddy Piper... He's really not crazy in the first part of the movie. He's not. He's not dropping no. one-liners. Um, he's not, you know, trying to be silly. And then just out of nowhere, he uh, finds out there's aliens, and yeah. it's time to kick ass. <laughs> it's really, and it's really funny. And I, I mean, I, and once I sort of realized how silly it all was, and how it wasn't even attempting to sort of really bridge the gap there, uh, I was able to swallow it better, just because. Um, just because I know that John Carpenter is not taking this movie very seriously. Um, I don't think, I mean, if I, as far as I'm concerned, if I want a John Carpenter B movie, that's just silly. I think big trouble in little China is better paced and funnier and little, and a little more fun to watch. A little more consistent. Yeah. But, uh, but no, you can't. You have to reacclimate yourself throughout the, they live in a way, especially once you get to the fight scene. (laughs) Yeah, I, I yeah I want to ask you about that, Jay. Beyond like it just being ridiculous, uh, do you think that was there any kind of like what was the reasoning behind that ridiculous fight scene between Keith David and Riley Ray Piper? Was it just John Carpenter like just fucking around, or do you, do you see like it serving some kind of purpose in the story? Because it it boggles my mind every time I see it. It's so silly and weird. I think it's just um, him getting his money's worth hi- when hiring a, a wrestler <laughs> to play yeah. as lead. I really see it anything as anything other than just the opportunity to have fun with a professional wrestler. And 
it, it seems to be, you know, maybe that scene was more for them during the making of the film than for the audience. Mm-hmm. That's personally, probably very true. Personally, I like the scene. I think there's some great comedy in it, especially yeah. uh, he smashes the the bottle on the car and then apologizes. Yeah, and, that's and such laughs. a that's yeah. such a great moment where he's like, "Oh shit!" It's it's like when you're play boxing with your girlfriend or something, and then you accidentally hit hit her for real, and you're like, "Oh, I'm sorry." <laughs> like yeah. I thought we were playing. <laughs> so it's self aware that it's kind of ridiculous as well. Yeah, but I mean. I think the whole movie is sort of just John Carpenter having fun and and paying tribute to the films that he grew up watching. I, like I never really take it to be anything other than that. Really, I mean, even the stuff with you know, you talk about the black and white sequences when the the sunglasses are put on. There are even a couple of shots in there of the aliens, like one scene where the the uh, the helper, the maid, or whatever is loading the groceries into the car, and the other one's talking about Lamaze class, and it's shot like the old processed on a studio set, but with rear screen projection of a street in the background, like a Hitchcock sort of, uh, you know, we don't, oh, sh- yeah, type thing that pops up a couple times. That that, and that that doesn't really happen anywhere else in the film except in those black and white sequences so i think he's very clearly referencing the films of that era and um even the scenes that are a little slower like the meg foster apartment scene at least ends with an amazing uh overhead shot of him being hit in the head with the bottle and tossed through that window and the scene where him and holly catch up at the meeting uh, and she attempts to apologize to him and is interrupted mid-sentence by an explosion. It's like every time that home <laughs> seems to, to get a little too emotional, something absolutely retarded <laughs> moment. Even even in the, the hotel room when Roddy Piper is telling the story about his dad hitting him and, and showing him the way of the Lord or whatever. And, uh, you know, eventually ending on that, you know, I ain't daddy's little boy no more. <laughs> like, <laughs> There's the ex- hell to pay. That's the explosion interrupt scene, you know? Um, so every scene I think kind of, um, is self-aware. The only thing he's probably guilty of is just being a little overindulgent with some of that stuff and letting it carry on longer than maybe it should. But um, other than that, I, I see it as just a really fun movie adventure movie that, you know, the satire stuff is there and it, it, it adds to it, but I don't think it defines it. And I think if you attempt to watch the movie with that defining it, it will fail miserably. Um, but otherwise, I, I have a lot of fun with it. There's just so many weird things, like Holly's nosy gay neighbors. <laughs> That's right. That's right. <laughs> yeah, those, those little touches that he throws in there is always <laughs> amazing. TV station, and he's looking for Holly. And that woman walks out that she's pregnant and she's carrying uh, like a thing of coffee. And he stops her and he's like, do you know Holly Thompson? Holly Thompson. She's like, I don't know. 
just the detail of like, you know, normally you could just have a woman walk out carrying some papers or something and he stops her. But the choice of making her pregnant and carrying a mu- like a mug of coffee, for some reason, that always stuck with me. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, what, what stuck with me is the, the, uh, the, uh, uh, the army soldiers that are invading the uh, television studio are carrying the uh, Ghostbusters. Yeah, the uh, EKGs. The EKGs from uh, Ghostbusters. Exactly. There's another Those one. little props. I, what makes it so crazy, though, is that, um, again, like, that's only after the first 30 minutes. And I always get thrown. I always forget, like, that this is that's what kind of movie it is. Because the first 30 minutes are, like, you know, it's kind of an, it's an intriguing story. And John Carpenter's, you know, he's still a very talented director. And he's very good at piquing the audience's interest. So I love the just hearing the recording, you know, playing of the church choir practicing and yeah. there's trying to figure out what's going on underneath and again and again uh, yeah, there's the, video signals here. Yeah, the video signals again. And one of the things that I love about John Carpenter that uh that's kind of funny is especially now because he's just sort of known as being this old grump <laughs> who who just is sort of he he's just sort of I'm old and I'm tired and I don't really care. I just love watching basketball and playing video games. Right, exactly. Uh, wait, is it, he loves playing video games? I thought so. Is that a thing? Maybe not. Wouldn't surprise me. It because um, what I'm saying is he like he always has like <coughs> and, uh, other than Halloween, which uh, Halloween, uh, you know, despite being a perfect movie, it doesn't really like. There's a lot about it that doesn't feel like a John Carpenter movie. Uh, you know, it was a it was an, a story idea that was just sort of thrust on him, and it was sort of he did it, you know, as a job, and he did the mm-hmm. he did it a fucking amazing job. But it doesn't feel like a John Carpenter movie as much as even something like Starman does. Yeah. Um, but like one of the things I love about there's always like computer readouts and or uh, or just technology or and there's the electronic scores which were very ahead of their time in the. You know, when he was making these movies and stuff, he's actually kind of a, despite being very old fashioned and, you know, having very old fashioned goals, um, there's a, I, I think we probably referenced it last John Carpenter episode. There's a very funny video of him ripping into all of his, uh, sort of filmmaking peers in the 70s, uh, like Robert Altman and, 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 uh, oh, and, Steven, right. and Steven yeah. Spielberg and accusing them of being, last year. accusing right. them of being really pretentious. Yeah, like, despite the fact that he comes off as kind of a stodgy old guy even back then, mm-hmm. like, he's kind of ahead of his time and he's kind of interested in technology and stuff. He doesn't seem as playful as, uh, have you, you've seen that, uh, John Carpenter, uh, John Landis, David Cronenberg roundtable yeah. discussion? Like, John Carpenter's like, no, nothing scares me. And John Carpenter, right, or, uh, John Landis is always like trying to egg him on and be like, nothing scares you? What's up with that? Yeah. <laughs> Um, no, but I think uh, it's, it's funny because, again, as, as Jay pointed out, sort of the uh, reoccurring themes throughout Carpenter's filmography. Once again, you have like uh, one man pitted, pitted against like a, you know, an underground organization or in this case an alien organization. And how does it end? Once again, all it takes is one weapon pointed at one thing and bam, that's it. <laughs> There's the end of your movie. You know, and that's all it takes. Uh, I he, do. He's very economical in that way, and, he all, and his movies are again like we brought this up with other filmmakers like Walter Hill or whoever. Tight, economical, ninety to one hundred minutes long. I'll say this about the ending of They Live and John Carpenter endings in general: they're very evocative. 
And mm-hmm. I like movies that end with you sort of having to fill in the blanks of where the story goes from there. The idea that once the aliens are revealed, what will happen next? We don't know. It's, it's sort of up for you to decide. Prince of Darkness, it's very evocative. Um, you know, it's not necessarily a definitive ending. Uh, the thing, obviously, Halloween, where, you know, Michael Myers is no longer there and he show you know, he goes back to all of the locations and to say he could be anywhere. Um, I'm I just love- going to feel awful if I'm masturbating and all of a sudden turns into an alien uh, female body. That'd be scary. What are you referencing? What you know, was the, that? Was the that ending, apropos of nothing? The ending of the movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh. oh, okay. <laughs> the very final shot of the movie, Patrick. <laughs> I thought you were losing your goddamn mind. <laughs> that too. It's a combination of the two. Oh, Jay, man. you should take over the podcast right now. Yeah. Before we... Uh, Destroy it. Uh, anything else to say about They Live before we sort of move on to a couple other John Carpenter films? Um, I I think I just you know the the idea of sort of the single man uncovering a massive plot is appealing to me. Like I guess the it's the whole conspiracy theory thing. You know, maybe what I guess kind of drives conspiracy theorists in general, just this idea that they're, they're in on some piece of information. And I think that's what drives the first half hour of the film, just watching him uncover, you know, the, uh, the, the like you said, the choir recording yeah. and sunglasses, like the laboratory and all of that stuff coming out in a very deliberately paced way. And then leading up to the crazy second and third acts which it's kind of interesting I mean it's hard to think of it this way because it is a movie of the 80s and everything is crazy in the 80s and even the opening half hour that's supposed to be rooted in the real world is goofy but the idea of taking a film that seems to be set in reality and when somebody uncovers uh, something it's something that is completely ridiculous and supernatural or whatever sort of like a from dusk till dawn where you know it seems to be a crime film and then what if within this crime film vampires actually existed and they have to deal with that you know what i i that, then but then again robert rodriguez doesn't have the kind of craftsmanship and well, no, but yeah that's a that's a story structure yeah that kind of appeals that i you know, i understand I thinking, that appeal. i've been thinking about slasher movies a lot and i was thinking about what makes a slasher movie that I like. And I realized <laughs> that um, sort of me, what defined slasher movies for me was something like uh, Friday 13th, the final chapter, or Final 13th Part 3. And what I really love about slasher movies is that it's two movies. It's uh, like a teen sex, sex comedy, comedy. And then that's movie A. And then movie B is a movie about a killer. And movie B starts just picking apart different characters from movie A until movie A has to stop because yeah. there's not enough characters left for it to continue. I love that structure um, in a slasher movie. And it's almost the same sort of thing where it's just like, um, it's just a subversion of what you expect things to happen, uh, what, you, what things you expect to happen, and that's why I, what I love, kind of movie you expect to be watching. And you know who does that almost every time? Paul Thomas Anderson. Like, just the subversion of what you expect, like a romantic really? comedy to be punch-drunk love. Well. Subversive. Completely did, subversive. Okay, well, I mean, let's be honest, though. Did anyone go into punch-drunk love thinking it would be a romantic comedy? Like, Well, but I, I, yeah, I was thinking... Before you said that, 
just in Magnolia, the frogs raining from the sky. I mean, that's a good point. Yeah. The aliens in this are essentially the frogs raining on the, <laughs> at the, or the, or the musical number for that matter. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Magnolia, I can say. Yeah, that's a good point. Uh, all of the sort of, you know, the fire and brimstone preacher and the uh, TV messages and all of that. I love all that stuff. I remember really being kind of uh, freaked out by that stuff when I saw this as a kid. But I mean, I, I think I'm pretty sure I saw Prince of Darkness first, even though I, it came out after this. And some of that carried over into They Live, kind of looking for these you know similarities in both so when i when i see that preacher or the um the guy on the television set talking about being asleep and everything it kind of reminded me of prince of darkness when i was a kid so i i probably projected something creepier on it than what's really intended yeah but well, i mean let's at transition the same time, over into prince of yeah darkness. i mean but i do want to say at the same time like the, the root of all of that is just john carpenter mastering evocative details yeah, um, which you know, obviously, best example we talked earlier about the thing and the way that. But I love his evocative details, and I love the way that Prince of Darkness opens, and the way it slowly teases you for. I think like the whole first ten minutes of the movie, the credits first ten minutes, are going yeah, it's on. all credits, and it's not all credits. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah, I mean, it's like the credits cut back and forth between the exposition and the, that the beginning. And like, Prince of Darkness is a movie I actually avoided for a while because it didn't have a great reputation. It didn't no one. I didn't ever hear anyone talk about how fun it was. Like heard about Big Trouble in Little China. I didn't hear people talk about how scary it was. Like other films. So it was one of the later John Carpenter films I ever got to. But I fell in love with it immediately from the way that those opening credits are like the yeah. way he uses a cut to black. Again, I've talked about this. I love. I love smash cuts to title cards and smash cuts and stuff. And the way he smash cut, you know, the way he keeps uses, using the cutting to the credits as a punctuation to a scene where two characters are talking about an idea that's kind of interesting and evocative or, or Donald Pleasant's uncovering or explaining what is going on and what exactly this church has buried in its basement. Um, he'll just give you just enough to sort of get your mind going and then he'll abandon you for a moment with the credits and that editing is so powerful and it's so hypnotic and the and that whole opening suite with the music is so amazing. Uh, yeah, again, we talked about great openings to horror movies. This is one of the best. I, I, the only other thing I could compare it to as far as opening credits for horror movies would be uh, um, David Fincher's Alien 3. Actually, I think David Fincher's Alien 3, if, not, uh, if it's not a reference to Prince of Darkness, it ripped off Prince of Darkness. Huh. Because, again, you, you see the face hugger unfolding like you just see some of its legs sort of unfolding and then immediately cut to black and then you you know with the music going and the way that you just you're oh shit what's about to cut to black cut to the credits um it's edited the exact same way as the opening prince of darkness but prince of darkness it keeps it up it's really creepy and again it's got all these people who are logical they're not dumb they they may you know they may be silly they may be they may be acting kind they of... They become pet- silly. They, they act petulant towards each other, but they're not just dumb teenagers acting stupidly. Yeah. One of my favorite things about Prince of Darkness is that they all have... They all know what's happening, but they only have pieces of the puzzle, and they're not coming... It's, it's sort of a different way of expressing the thing where 
um, the paranoia keeps them apart, and them staying apart is what keep is what makes the thing able to pick them off one by one. Mm-hmm. And this, just the fact that each of them is only feeling part of the elephant, and none of them actually see what the whole picture is. You know, one person has a tail, one person has the tusk, one person has the trunk, and then one person has the leg, and all of them have a different idea of what this elephant is. And there's um, just one that's guy what that's keeps like, them- uh, one, there's one guy that's just like, this is bullshit, this is caca, yeah. over and over again. Well, yeah, it's it's got some, uh, John, one of the things that the thing distinctly doesn't have is John Carpenter sometimes writes some really uh, cringeworthy dialogue. Uh that, uh, you look like your head fell into a cheese grater yeah. back in nineteen. You fell into the cheese dip in nineteen. That's <laughs> one of the worst lines. Um, but uh, no, so, I, I think Prince of Darkness is this crazy amalgam of things that I find terrifying and interesting. I was watching it in the flu-induced state and going, "Wow, this is all crazy things that I like all in one movie." It's like a, it's like a, a really beautiful. Uh, blender kind of a thing, and it's all like in the we just saw Phantasm, and it doesn't have the same like high energy sort of craziness or even the same sense of humor to but it. But it's still but, kind of nightmarish. And, yeah, exactly. And you know, it's got his sort of apocalyptic the, feel and, and it has, apocalyptic dread. And there's imagery. I mean, we talked earlier about the video footage of the figure in the church, which is. Just I just thinking about it really creeps me out. You have mm-hmm. the imagery of like the hand reaching through the mirror. Um, yeah, like there's a lot that's and you have the worms that I no, think it's I think it's don't, reversed. Don't talk about the worms. I think it's reversed footage, um, and it, because it looks like the worms are are sliding up the window instead of sliding down. And I think what John Carpenter yeah. did was actually you, you talk about the video footage the. Moment I can't watch is the guy made out of bugs going. We have a message for I have a message for you and you're not going to yeah. like it. Right, I can't watch that part. It's too much for me. But I also really like Donald Pleasance when he has the axe and he goes, "Oh, I, 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 I could, I, I, I could do poor this." Don, poor Donald Pleasance is over his head. Um, That's really the good. only weakness of the film is that the climax is not very exciting. The climax is kind of weak. And but just thrown the the axe into the Prince mirror. But of Darkness just just by being so creepy and having being so effective at setting up and being so evocative in its ideas, um, like yeah. being truly original. Like it's one of my favorite Jen Carpenter movies. Physics, sure. dreams, time travel, science versus religion. You got it all. Yeah, you got it all here. What do you, what what say you, Jay? Um, I I love Prince of Darkness and yeah. Uh, Donald Pleasance, I love him in this film, although he is like ridiculously overacting (laughs) on Eleven throughout this whole movie. Like he's got some so many classic the axe moment that you were talking about, or when he's like, "Why weren't we told the truth?" (laughs) Classic stuff. Uh, I I think I almost maybe don't see it as overblown because I watched it pretty close to watching Halloween four and five. (laughs) <laughs> and and him in Halloween four and five actually makes pr- him in Prince of Darkness seem reasonable. Um, but again, you know the idea of a, a group of people trapped inside of this creepy looking church, and whenever they would cut to an exterior and you'd see a car drive by, I always used to think that that was really creepy because what's the battle that's going on inside that church is. Uh, massive and and when you cut it to the exterior and people are kind of driving by like the world is going on 
um, you know, as is, as this is happening, is freaky to me. Um, I guess, you know, it reminds me of like, uh, you know, hearing about these stories of coming extremely close to the brink of nuclear war because of a passing satellite mistaken as a missile coming in or something like that and not knowing anything about that until years later when it's released that this happened. Um, but I, I mean, I would, as far as the climax, I, I think I would disagree. I think it's pretty effective just because of how many things are happening during the climax and everything seems like everyone's struggling so hard to accomplish something and not getting anywhere with it and being stopped by like when, uh, uh, Jameson Parker is is hanging on the back of the the one guy as he's like slamming him against the wall and he's trying to help the girl and Donald Pleasance is cowering in the corner and it just there's so much stuff going on at once and it's all being balanced that I I actually feel that it works although I mean I guess the idea of just throwing the axe and breaking the mirror might not be that exciting but the stuff of him running up and cutting her arm off and then chopping her head off and her putting it back on and smiling at him. That's creepy. Yeah. Um, and the idea of, of, uh, the girl being lost forever on the other side, I think is pretty creepy as well. That image of her reaching her arm out with sort of the flashes of light, um, you know, talking about leaving the audience with not, having all of the answers, like wondering what, what that existence would mean for her on the other side. And then of course, what it means when she shows up in the, um, the final transmission or dream or whatever it actually is. Yeah. I wouldn't mind a, a Prince of Darkness too. I would. I wouldn't. I think it's perfect. What would be the, what, go ahead, go ahead, Jim, pitch me what you think Prince of Darkness to what, what would be the sequel? What, what, how would the story continue? What? Well, just to see what the results of the transmissions would have meant in the future and kind of seeing what the repercussions of her going into the world means or just knowing why specifically she was in those transmissions. and I don't know. Just, I mean, it's good to end on a, kind of that ambiguous note of him reaching into the mirror. But like, I, think, I think the very fact that you want to know all these things... That is that's that's why the ending is effective. I almost like the the mythology built into this movie in some way. But I mean, again, I I mean again, maybe I just, I just disagree with you. But I think I think what makes it so powerful is that it's evocative and that yeah. it, and that it exists in your head. And the idea of them explaining it would well, maybe not explaining it. I guess. Well, I mean, you know, just the idea that you have to fill in the blanks yourself is what makes it powerful and. You know, and I think the idea of expanding on the mythology in any way. Um, well, I'll work it out in my dreams. Yes, go, go for it. I'll now, um, screenplay. I want to talk a little bit about In the Mouth of Madness because I saw this uh, with one of my friends in an abandoned movie theater in 1994. And uh, we had to drive through very desolate, kind of cornfield roads on the way back, and you saw the one sort of a line breaking up back and forth on the way home. And oddly enough, on on the way back, we did see a, a creepy old woman riding a bicycle late at night. And it was just a little too creepy seeing that after watching In the Mouth of Madness. And I was terrified that we were going to be in the state of eternal return 
of uh, keep going back and forth and being stuck in a, in a time loop of sorts. And I think, like Jay brought up earlier, that idea freaks me out. I mean, it's certainly, for some people, it gets annoying, but for me, it's terrifying the moment where Sam Neill is trying to get out of this town, but he's stuck back and forth in this loop. Um, I feel like Carpenter kind of uses sort of space and time dislocation very effectively. It's a disorienting kind of a movie. It's told in this nonlinear fashion. It feels very nightmarish throughout. And it's kind of, I don't know if it was, I don't know if it was based on an H.P. Lovecraft story or not, but it feels like it it, it sort of derives. I think it it is. Is it, Jay? Do you know? I I don't think so. I think it's uh, sort of in the spirit of, but I'm going to Google that just because I... Yeah, I wasn't sure. It feels like it is. It could be. Uh, But again, I mean, I I know Patrick isn't a fan of the idea of this sort of completing Carpenter's vision of an apocalyptic trilogy, but it doesn't really fall into this. It, in terms of style and execution, it doesn't really feel like um, The Thing or Prince of Darkness, and maybe it's because it's, you know, this takes place at a, a different era in, you know, in the mid-90s, which wasn't definitely like the highlight of uh, his career because he put out some clunkers throughout the 90s, in my opinion. And In the Mouth and Madness felt like a return to form for him in terms of just, again, sort of creating that sense of dread and atmosphere throughout. Um, and just the idea of him going to this non-existent town and, you know, he was sort of commenting a little bit, maybe not so subtly, on Stephen King and the, the idea of, like, can a horror novel or even just the effect of horror cinema in general, how it can affect its uh, viewers and readers and whatnot... It's there. It's sort of some sly commentary, but it's mo- again, it's more of a B horror picture at heart. And uh, I think Sam Neill gives. I, I just it's one of those mind fucks kind of a, of a movie for me that really works well um, in the moment. You know, in hindsight, if you really wanted to sort of piece this movie apart, you could and just sort of dismiss it. But I think at the time when I saw it, and again, it could be partially due to nostalgia and my. Uh, affinity for it. Even as I've rewatched it, I I just grow to like it more and more over the years. I think it's kind of a it's kind of a mess, but at the same time, it's kind of an effective, creepy, weird, interesting mess from Carpenter at a time when I think people sort of wrote him off as a horror director because he wasn't really making um solid work in the early part of the nineties. So I, I really like In the Mouth of Madness quite a bit. Yeah, I, I love the film I, I mean it's uh it came at a time where you know i was excited for a new john carpenter movie but didn't have high expectations and i think i was very pleasantly surprised mm-hmm. and it, it does feel more like a, a traditional john carpenter film at least in you know there being some actors popping up that he's worked with or the cinematography and and whatnot and the music i think it's another great score except for the opening song which is this weird like enter sandman knockoff yeah that closing credit song right is that the same song it's like kind of like a yeah he he was guilty of that for like escape from la and ghost of mars almost like having the the kind of like like the what do you call that kind of rock music? New, new metal. New well, new metal would be Ghosts of Mars. It probably wasn't. Yeah. New metal wasn't around for Escape from L.A. I don't believe. Or I guess Corn maybe. Yeah. 
these other he started bringing in these other um composers that he worked with like i think on this one it's jim lang i'm not too familiar with him but um i assume that that started to influence the scores he was doing like there was a for escape from la it's a woman that he worked with i can't remember her name hmm. with village of the Dam. i believe it was dave davies of the kinks oh, that well, he, oh wow um huh. And for Ghosts of Mars, he worked with Anthrax. So he started bringing in these other co-composers um, where before he was working with Alan Howarth. And that, in my opinion, is his best score work. But um, as as you know, time went on, his scores got a little away from his traditional minimalist synthesizer sort of style and probably a little closer to what you're describing like the judgment night style <laughs> but um yeah I, I love this movie and the church oh, yeah. which uh, we actually found i think last year um because it's just outside of toronto and i'd always known that it was somewhere around toronto and we were driving out to a, a county fair and when we got off the highway i could see that the, the top of it and i knew immediately what it was so we went and drove over to it and it sits there exactly how it is in the movie only overgrown with weeds on the steps and everything because it's not in use anymore Mm -hmm. but haven't knocked it down and they're actually building uh suburbs around it um and it's called cathedral town so it sits in the middle of of the suburbs now that's not that sounds like the setup of a John Carpenter film. Yeah. It was amazing seeing it though. I, I love that church. Yeah. The town of Hobbs end where that, that's where it takes place. Yeah. I don't remember in the mouth of madness much except <laughs> for the, the, at the part scene where he's in the alleyway really. Yeah. I don't even remember what exactly what happens, but I remember being really freaked out by just it. the face. Like there's like three occurrences where he's reading the book and he has different dreams involving that guy in the alley right with the axe or something that's um now jay i've been told that you actually really like uh escape from la here we go i despise um i i was curious is it just sort of you just sort of think it's kind of fun or do you think it's like legitimately like really good or is it nostalgia or what 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 do you like about escape from la um well i first and foremost i think it's a lot of fun and i think it's funny and I, I wouldn't say nostalgia. I don't think this one came late enough to not really be nostalgia, I think. But um, I don't know. It just, I guess it's one of those movies that's hard to defend because it, it'd be like asking, like, Jim, you love Evil Dead 2, right? Oh, of course. And that is a film that if someone came up to you and said, I, I don't get it, that movie's goofy and dumb and... I don't like it. Like it's a tough film to convince someone to like because you can understand why someone wouldn't like it because it's not for everybody. But with Escape from LA, I just I don't totally I think it truly just comes down to the effects. The effects are so terrible that they <laughs> put everybody off. And it's true, they are horrible. But I like the fact that they're aiming for these they're aiming for the stars, even though they don't have the budget to accomplish it. And 
while it doesn't always work on a technical side, I think that the set pieces in the film are truly inventive and fun and I, you know, well done aside from the bad CG. Like, I think the surfing scene is amazing. I think the basketball shootout is amazing. I think the fact that John Carpenter is completely aware of um, how goofy the movie is and, and is sort of satirizing his own work, uh, I find that to be a lot of fun. The fact that it wears its Western influences on its sleeve even more than something like They Live. Um, and it just it uses LA as a, a landscape an opportunity to just create these goofy scenarios with a lot of great character actors that, you know, I remember when Grindhouse came out, I specifically was thinking why I don't, I don't understand why everybody is so excited about planet terror when it, it shares so much in common as even visually with escape from LA, like escape from LA could be, a grindhouse second bill. Yeah. And, I mean, I, it's dated and it's just unfortunately dated in the wrong time frame. Like it's dated in that period where we had CG, but it still at times looked like you were watching like the motion video segments of wing commander on a PC <laughs> or something. Yeah. So it's, it's not dated in a, an area that's particularly aesthetically pleasing. Like, an 80s movie is dated where you can still say, oh, well, I it looks fake. It's dated, but I appreciate the craftsmanship and the artistry that and the, the creativity of problem solving. With this, it's just like it looks like a video game from, you know, the PlayStation 1 era or something. But beyond that, I mean, I, I think it's a lot of fun. I, I think it's John Carpenter's Evil Dead 2. I mean, he's... He's kind of retreading the same territory and there's a lot of the same story beats, but he's doing it with his, you know, tongue in his cheek and they're having fun with it. And, um, yeah, I mean, I don't totally understand the hate towards the film. I mean, it's got an action sequence with hang gliders and people shooting while flying gliders. I, I, uh, I mean, again, I think. No, first and foremost, if 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 you think Evil Dead Two is unfunny, then there's no convincing you that it's funny. You know, it's a matter of taste. And I think, personally, I think that Escape from LA is really like it tries to be satirical and it tries to be funny, but it's mostly just kind of feels it mostly makes me yeah kind of groan. But beyond that, what and I, I wish I could cite you know be more specific. Um, but it's, I only saw it the one time and I wasn't super into it and it was a year ago, but, um, my problem with escape from LA wasn't necessarily the dated effects as horrible as those are. There's not a, there's not actually a ton of CG in the movie. So it's not, it's not, it's not the huge, it's not the biggest problem. My problem is I honestly don't think the sequences are well shot and edited. And like, I don't think they're, I think that I don't, I think that John Carpenter phoned, them in like the like the first sort of sequence where snake is on the motorcycle like it looks so slow and it and it's so obviously being like a motorcycle is being towed by a vehicle and it's not exciting and like the, the the surfing scene and a hang gliding scene like they like even i'm not a huge fan of escape from new york but when that movie kicks into gear and when it, you've got those sort of weirdo junkies coming out of the sewers and stuff and, and stuff like that. Like it is genuinely exciting and it's, 
I I mostly think Escape from L.A. is just ugly, and it's and I don't I don't think John Carpenter, um, he I don't he was either not super invested in it or yeah he just isn't the filmmaker he used to be because I honestly I just think it's poorly made and I wish I could be more specific um, because uh, that was my main problem with it. Also, I mean, again, if I found it funny, a lot of this would be able to be forgiven. But personally, I didn't. I don't find it very funny. Yeah, subjectively, I mean, being a huge John Carpenter fan, I should be right with Jay on this one. And uh, I don't know. It just uh, it, di- it didn't work for me. I mean, especially like you say, it's his Evil Dead Two. Evil yeah. Dead Two is Sam Raimi, his craft at the top of its game, and him being his mm-hmm. most Sam Raimi and his most effective. And it and it's his filmmaking aesthetic taken to the nine, and I don't think that you can say the same about Escape from L.A. And I don't want to think like you know I wouldn't say a lot of his uh, latter films are half-assed or they just they just don't feel like passion projects and stories that he is fully invested in, and that's and I'm not saying that like he certainly doesn't bring his stylistic flourishes and his trademark touches that we've all come to love and appreciate it's just that you know with something like the ward yes he's still you know framing in in scope and he has some incredible shots of hallways but in terms of screenplay it's it's not there he doesn't have the story to back it up and uh i think escape from la it 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 feels if there's such thing as like having too much self-awareness Maybe that's the problem. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, well, like, have, whether or not that is what Escape LA is, there, that's definitely a thing. <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I mean, if you find it fun and funny, that's that's one thing. I mean, that's that's great. I mean, maybe there'll come a time when it'll hit me at the, in the right way at the right time. Maybe I'll be in the mood for it. And maybe it is something about expectations because I do have a strong affinity for Escape from New York. I, I certain I didn't like it as much when I saw it when I was younger. I was more restless with it back then, but I've grown to really like Escape from New York, and I think Escape from L.A. just again felt like a like a, yeah a retread, but also the humor <laughs> aspect of it, and it just didn't uh, work for me for some reason. Yeah. Don't get me wrong when I say I that it's funny. I mean, I'm not laughing while I'm watching it. Yeah. Like I, very rarely laugh at anything. <laughs> um, I, I think I can just appreciate the fun of these older filmmakers making a movie outside of their glory days, I suppose, mm-hmm. and maybe not getting everything right and not being able to play ball with the the younger filmmakers that are you know, making blockbusters outside of their 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 world, um, and I, I think that this is kind of portrayed in the film in, in a to a degree. This idea of like the aging hero and the idea of um, shutting down technology all over the world and all of the uh, Western sort of nods throughout the film it's very this is why i like john carpenter he's he's very comfortable in a certain area that is at this point dated like i I think john carpenter you know he made the ward 
It was a piece of garbage. It's not totally representative of what his brand of filmmaking is. I think the ward is an attempt for him to make something relevant and not realizing that it's completely not relevant. <laughs> Whereas if he just stuck to what he, his comfort zone, he would, he would work better that way. But I think even John Carpenter in his comfort zone is now, um, irrelevant to mm. audiences. He's a very simplistic filmmaker. And I think with escape from LA, it being like I, I agree, it's not. It's not like I this. I'm holding Escape from L.A. up as one of John Carpenter's great achievements in cinema or anything. I just think it's a fun movie, and it's. I more don't understand the hatred towards it, but I just I like the idea of sort of being the black sheep and and still making a movie that it it, it kind of speaks to his direct influences, which are dated by 40 years and yeah, yeah. He'll, he'll make a movie in that sandbox and it failing miserably because he refuses to cast a young star in it as his as his hero or he ref- he still insists on having a score that has western uh beats in it and and it's the step where he attempts to inject tool and rage against the machine that I don't like yeah. it's oh and that's where maybe it's problematic is those two the old school and new school kind of butting heads and him trying to figure that out but I feel with Escape from LA the old school Carpenter uh wins out for the most part and just from the casting alone uh to me it's clear that he's just attempting to make a 1970s low budget house film in 1997 when that was not even a thing you know like grindhouse was still years away tarantino had done pulp fiction but he hadn't done kill bill yet you know like there's no like fetishizing of that grindhouse sensibility um at least not on the at this level uh you know casting pam greer even though you know jackie brown had come out around that time, but casting Pam Greer and and even Bruce Campbell and Peter Fonda and this appreciation towards that era of cinema where things are fast and loose and, and dirty and and not everything's technically uh, sound and you know some of the storytelling it it's it, it's essentially an exploitation film like it's hmm. all films that came out after Escape from New York. Um, that are the post-apocalyptic um, rip-offs of Escape from New York, like um, Bronx, what is it, Bronx Warrior? I can't remember the name of it, but there's one that's directly an Italian rip-off of, of Escape from New York that's actually kind of fun. This is an exploitation movie that's ripping off Escape from New York. It's yeah. like <laughs> Jaws as Escape from LA is as to Escape from New York only it's the same director kind of ripping off his own work. Yeah. And, and I appreciate twist. the intent behind I, it. I think, and I, and I do think, I think most of the hatred probably comes from people misunderstanding Escape from New York. I think people uh, sort of maybe hold the character of Snake in higher regard, despite the fact yeah. that he doesn't really have much of a character. They idealize and I think him. They, I think they go, oh, he made him silly. 
who, and again, that's Escape from New York is satirical. Escape from New York is kind of silly, and Escape from New York is kind of crazy. Um, and and Snake is kind of silly and crazy in it. So I think I think probably any intense hatred LA gets, maybe it's just the maybe it's just seen as sort of people can write off. Okay. Village of the Dam, that wasn't really his thing. Okay, Memoirs of Invisible Man, that's him sort of branching out. I think maybe Escape from L.A. was the first time people had to sort of confront the fact that that uh, John Carpenter was no longer the filmmaker he was in the 70s and 80s. And I think that might be why people might intense react more intensely and more negatively than they necessarily should. I, I, I reacted intensely and negatively towards the ward because it had been 10 years or nine years mm-hmm. <laughs> between movies. I mean, he did... I, I kind of like Cigarette Burns, to be honest. I really liked that Masters of Horror episode. Not too big on pro-life, but uh, Cigarette Burns sort of felt like in the Mouth of Madness light, in a way. Yeah, I, don't, I mean, I think filmmakers should be allowed to get old and to fall into ruts and just, yeah. you know... Like that's fine. John, no one has a run like John Carpenter does. Oh God! I mean, like things, I said, like, he made that trifecta in a row. Like one of I the said. funny, one of the like funny, like you try to think of any other filmmaker who is considered a quote unquote master of horror. Who's considered yeah. like Romero doesn't have an amazing track record. Wes Craven is a whole, like is pretty much a bad director who had like Scream some, and who, Nightmare who had, on Elm Street. Who like he got some killer concepts, but like. Wes Craven has made some of the worst movies. I and I honestly would include Last House on the Left in that. As influential as it is, I think that movie's horrible. Like they're like John Carpenter has earned has earned the right to make a shitty movie like he made Ward. Halloween and the Thing. Yeah. <laughs> you know? He made Halloween the Thing and They Live and Prince of Darkness and Assault yeah. on Goddamn Precinct Thirteen, which by the way is an amazing movie. And it says here that uh, in 2011 at the Fright Night Film Festival, he revealed that he is currently working on what he considered to be a gothic western movie and hopes to get it off the ground. We'll see if that comes into fruition, but we would greatly look forward to anything Carpenter has uh, coming up. Absolutely. Um, Let's hope he doesn't, you know, um, give in to this need to modernize his storytelling. Yeah. I don't know. Like, I think that's what kind of is what's happening with Romero to a degree. And I Mm -hmm. think with Carpenter, he just needs to do what he's good at and, you know, keep it simple and stay within his comfort zone and do films that are more sort of throwbacks and I um, think he, I think he can now. I think we, he should I think, be able I think to. that. I mean, he shouldn't like he shouldn't have to make the ward. He, I think that sort of the environment of horror film and stuff, maybe not a major studio movie, depending <laughs> on the kind of budget he's looking for. But I think he should be able to release films like that and mm-hmm. have them find audiences. Hopefully, I mean. I don't know. I don't know what kind of he seems to his name carries more weight in regards to just uh, having a pool of films to pull from for remakes. Yeah, I don't know. It seems to be his I I mean, it's no wonder he's this grumpy old man now, which I don't know if that's totally true. I, I think more just in terms of dealing with press and fandom and stuff like that. But I mean, his work throughout the 80s mostly went 
unnoticed or even uh, were critically ravaged. And now all these years later, there's this appreciation for his work and these remakes being made. And sure, he gets these checks cut to him, which I I'm, know he loves, but uh, it, it does kind of suck to have to go through that stretch of your career where you're completely underappreciated and then so many years later have people starting to um, appreciate your work and all of these remakes coming out which I don't know I don't I don't know what his stance on those are but they're mostly pretty terrible yeah I my, yeah, I feel he, like don't, he only liked Assault on Precinct 13 did he like that one yeah that was the only one that he's been quoted I w- as saying he liked. I wouldn't even think he would even I, th- I would think he would have an Alan Moore stance not necessarily Alan Moore because that because Alan Moore takes his name off and is very and vit- has a lot of vitriol but I always thought he wouldn't even bother Seeing like, him, uh, the story of in that in that great uh, the Halloween special that Phil that Phil directed, um, who Phil who was our guest on the last uh, John Carpenter episode, uh, was just like Rob Zombie told the story. He called John Carpenter, and uh, Rob Zombie goes, "Oh, they want me to make Halloween," and John Carpenter just went, "Yeah," and he goes, "Well, I don't know what you think," and then John Carpenter said. "Have fun with it," and that was the full extent of the conversation. <laughs> like I don't. Uh, I, I don't necessarily think he has a lot invested in it. And if I mean, if he is, if he if he has still has projects he's passionate for, I'm excited to see them. But if he is just, well, I should I should work. I feel like working. You know, might as well do the um, work. I'm too. not I'm not necessarily excited uh, for, for. But again, I don't. You know, I'm not necessarily excited for every movie Woody Allen releases. Yeah. I, you know what? You know, but. Even though, even though Woody Allen's the opposite, instead of stop working, Woody Allen never ever stopped working. But um, mm-hmm. you know, like it's, I think he sort of earned the right to, you know, be where he is now. And yeah, I almost think like maybe just doing the ward was just to literally get behind the camera again and sort of get reacquainted with directing after taking such a long hiatus. And almost in the same way that I thought of when I saw the whole uh, Joe Dante's The Hole, I was thinking, you know, he he could do so much better than did this. Joe Dante write The Hole. I don't. Speaking think of, that's so. actually a good transition. Um, oh yeah, that's our next director. <laughs> our next director. Uh, it's funny. Funny enough, even though this episode, sorry everybody, that this episode had to come out after Halloween. Um, I think you guys will. I think you'll guys enjoy. Halloween came out in 1978. So right, yeah, he beat us to it. We wanted to do an episode before he was <laughs> before he had a career, but uh, no. But uh, at, then we're doing Joe Dante. Uh, yeah, next I, episode with my friend Colin Suter, which is going to be great. He's uh, met Joe Dante and. Um, Ooh, you met Joe Dante. Well, yeah. Good times. <laughs> so uh, another another person who sort of made a name for himself in yeah. not necessarily only horror, but... Uh, two directors I sort of grown up watching regularly yeah. as a kid. So it's really cool. Any uh, any final thoughts on John Carpenter, Jay? Um, <clears throat> well, I, I just want to give some love uh, for Vampires and Ghosts of Mars as well, which are two films that... I think a lot of people hate, and um, I kind of hate Ghosts of Mars. But go ahead. <laughs> I, I think Ghosts of Mars is a lot of fun as well. It's basically Assault on Precinct Thirteen on Mars with Marilyn Manson, Ugh. the cult or the gang leader. Yeah. Uh, but uh, vampires, I really like as well. I love the whole uh, conspiracy in the church and. 
even though it seems like with vampires he he almost shifted his style more towards i think he'd watched a lot of robert rodriguez movies or something because he <laughs> these dissolves it kind of part of his style to dissolve people throughout you know space and time in the scene like if someone's walking away from an exploding building they will dissolve further and further away until they're gone type thing which i know robert rodriguez does all the time and um but with vampires james woods i think is is awesome in that movie and uh yeah he's a lot of fun definitely that he's a lot of fun so and another fun score with that and clearly western influenced um yeah other than that the ward's a piece of shit <laughs> agreed uh, why don't we uh i don't oh, and if, as long as we're throwing out recommendations uh once again i do want to say to everybody um somebody's watching me is actually surprisingly good i'm watching you right now yeah somebody's watching me is a surprisingly good movie and it's one that i think a lot of people don't realize it's a thing but it was a tv movie he wrote um and directed and it's uh it's a tv movie so it's paid i mean we recommended on the last show yeah i know i know but i just want to double down again and say uh somebody's watching me is better than you think um yeah i enjoy that one yeah, that's pretty good. Why don't I, we do our top three? Because mine's changed since the last episode. Mine probably has as well. Ooh. Patrick, what's your top three John Carpenter movies? Um, my number one is The Thing. I believe oh. my number one last time was Halloween. That's right. Yeah, it has my changed. My number two is Halloween. And my number three is Prince of Darkness. Wow. My number one will always be The Thing. Number two, Halloween. And number three, Prince of Darkness, overtaking Assault on Precinct 13. Uh, my number one would be The Thing. Number two would be Big Trouble in Little, Little China. And number three, Prince of Darkness. Very good. We could hypothetically do another John Carpenter episode <laughs> on Big Trouble and Assault on Precinct 13. Oh my god. <laughs> just make it like a yearly tradition. Maybe. I think next year we're just going to do another Bava episode. But uh, We probably should. I'm excited to see a lot of his work. I'm excited well. to see Joe Tante's work. I'm excited to finally see The Explorers, which you oh, have always Patrick. talked about. I mean, yeah. I didn't grow uh, up in the 80s, Jim. I know. And also, I didn't grow up... like I. I, I, I want to take the, you to the drive-in to see that in Footloose, like I did. Yeah. Uh, I Not only did I not grow up in the 80s, I grew up not renting a lot of movies. Um, the only movies I rented as a kid, I think I rented Flight of the Navigator. Which is uh, great. Six six times in a row. God, and I, I saw think, that at the drive-in too. I think that was every mo- every movie I rented for like two years in a row was only Flight of the Navigator. You are the Navigator. Yeah, that has a good that is a good John Carpenter esque kind of build up where you're trying to figure out what the fuck's going on. And there's time travel. There you go. Okay, um, Jay. Woo-hoo! Thanks again. Um, go ahead and uh, drop out any any plugs you have. Um, by the way, what is the what's the status on how to build a time machine? Um. Still going through various funding stages. We are, we were just like on the cusp of being ready to go with it, and then something came up, and now we're. I'm waiting to hear back from uh, another entity that could potentially give us more money. So it's it's been a long, frustrating year with that um, mm-hmm. waiting on various people to uh get back to us but hopefully we're close to starting like actual full 
production on it. We've been right. doing stuff here and there throughout the year, but can listeners still uh, donate, or is that indie? I think it was an Indiegogo or a Kickstarter. Is that done? That's done. Okay. That hot docs, but they can check out the hot docs site for the other projects that they're they're supporting if they want to uh, see if there's anything there worth handing money over to. Um, what was I going to do? Oh, uh, film junk. <laughs> <laughs> www.filmjunk.com uh, we've been doing the Film Junk podcast for I think six years now or something and we're coming up on our 400th episode in December I yes. think. Yes, can't wait for that you're going to do another top 100 films of all time between the four of you? That's, I think that's the plan Awesome um, and we, we've put a call out to people to send in emails with Sean added your favorite moments along with the worst moments. I really wanted just a, a 400th episode show where we focus entirely on everything people hate about the show. <laughs> Wrong about reviews or people like hosts that they don't like or don't think are funny and so on. Wow. Uh, but we're trying, I guess Sean wants to keep it balanced. So I think anyone- that, would, I would, that would get kind of <laughs> nightmarish to listen to if you only listen to the low lights. And wanted to try and get it going between us, the hosts, where we would pick a movie that we specifically think someone else was flat out wrong about and essentially attack that person. But it'll be a little lighter than that, I think. Um, so there's that. And uh, I'm on Twitter at twitter.com slash jcheel. And uh, I think that's about it. And you're on Letterboxd as well. I don't know what that is. There an address for that? Uh, letterbox.com. Probably just Jay Cheel, right? J Cheel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I'm, at, I'm over at Letterboxd as uh, Instant Jim and Twitter, Instant Jim. And of course, you can uh, visit us. At, wow, I just threw a blank. Where are we? Directorsclubpodcast.com. That's right. We're over at directorsclubpodcast.com and email us at directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. That's right. Patrick, where are you? I'm at Patrick Rapol on Twitter. Uh, Marthy, Martha Marcy uh, Nash and Young dot wordpress dot com. Uh, that's my viewing journal, which I've fallen behind on once again. Same here. Uh, it's very difficult. Uh, um, but uh, I, I, that's not abandoned. It, it will be updated in the future. You could just go back and listen to your lightning round to really catch up on all your... I guess so. <laughs> I guess so. I go into more detail, but uh, yeah. Um, and uh, as far as Jay goes, hey, guys, go check out Beauty Day. I, re- I still excellent. really love that. I still really enjoy that documentary quite a bit. So uh, check out Jay's film Beauty Day. And uh, that's about it for me. I yeah. believe be coming out in the states sometime next year early next year oh it isn't out in the uh states yet no there's it's available on dvd in canada and you can buy it through amazon.ca um you can import it but it's going to be available um early next year in the states excellent great it's a great documentary thanks again jay really appreciate you being on the show and uh yeah, everybody check out Film Junk. It's my favorite film podcast out there. Thanks for having me. And I just, people need to listen. There, I think there's going to be some moments throughout the show. I don't know how the recording works on your end, but I think when I talk and other people are talking, you can't hear me. 
Yeah, it's a problem with Skype. Is it mutes you? It, it mutes. It mutes the other person. We doesn't happen as much with this, with some guests, but I've noticed it with Jay. There's a there's a few moments I think where <laughs> I'm kind of like half into a sentence and just giving up. So for people listening, I'm not like just. Uh, that's the problem. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for listening. Yeah, uh, thanks so, so much. much for listening Again, to the send show. Send in your emails. Send in your voicemails. Uh, we try to respond the best we can to yeah. as many of them as you can, unless they're just trolly or whatever. Then we ignore them. But uh, uh, yeah, other than that, no, not to name names or anything. Yeah. So other- we'll talk to you in two weeks for the Joe Dante episode. Can't wait for that. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll see you then. Goodbye. And speaking of Stephen King, hey, Cujo's here. I'd never seen this before, <laughs> and uh, I was pleasantly surprised how He's good. Here. Yeah. Where, where does it show like Satan working at the docks, being like, <laughs> "Were you possessing this girl?" It's like, "How could I be possessing this girl? I was working here all weekend." <laughs> <laughs> and Satan is played by Billy Crystal. <laughs> Uh, I have a special message coming from the special transmission really, coming in from row3.com. You're really stuck on getting that Prince of Darkness conceit into this <laughs> podcast somehow. Before before we called you, we were trying to figure out how we could um, parody that, that those dream sequences in Prince of Darkness in either the in, intro or the outro of the show. We couldn't really figure out a good way. We're starting this podcast from the year 2222. <laughs> I think you've just figured it out. Yeah, I guess. <laughs>